We have one mission. Kill it. And you're coming with us. I'm sorry, did you say Prague? Mr. Fury, this all seems like big time adult content and spoiler warning kind of stuff. And I mean, I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, sir. Bitch, please, you've been to space. And now, binge mode Marvel. Everywhere I go, I see his face. And the whole world is asking who's gonna be the next Iron Man. I don't know if that's me happy. I'm not Iron Man. You're not Iron Man. You're never gonna be Iron Man. Nobody could live up to Tony. Not even Tony. Tony was my best friend. And he was a mess. He second-guessed everything he did. He was all over the place. The one thing that he did that he didn't second-guess was picking you. I don't think Tony would have done what he did if he didn't know that you were gonna be here after he was gone. Boy, emotional in a way. And welcome to Binge Mode Marvel, yes. proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of TheRinger.com. Oh! What a great website. It's the best. Joining me today, now that he is sure That's right. Janice has gotten the wrinkles out of his cape, it's your favorite Earth-833 impersonator, Jason Concepcion. Mal! I could literally be shaking hands with the queen. I need that cape. I need binge mode Marvel, where we've been exploring the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Infinity Saga and the comic book lore that inspired it as phase four dawns. Please make the journey to Venice with us by following this podcast on Spotify or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us the five star ratings or we won't save you a seat at the opera. If you're looking to catch up on our prior seasons or listen to them again, you can find our entire archive, Binge Mode, Game of Thrones, Binge Mode, Harry Potter, Binge Mode, Star Wars, Binge Mode Weekly for free, exclusively on Spotify. Feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. Enjoy our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to discuss witches with Mr. Dell. And don't forget to head to the ringer.com slash shop to check out our Binge Mode merch, a more comfortable fit than the night monkey suit. Night monkey! Night monkey, help us! A little tighter on the web shooter. A little tighter on the old web shooter. The the web shooter is almost too graphic for this movie. That's like a binge mode joke. I know. (laughs) I can't believe it every time. Last time on Binge Mode Marvel, we concluded our two-part Avengers Endgame extravaganza. And today, we're diving deep. Deep! Into our discussion of Spider-Man, Far From Home. Yeah. The 23rd and final film of the first three phases of the MCU. Oh, oh my I can't God. Ah! Steve's going to have to edit out all the shrieks and weird sounds I make this episode. But we will have one more episode of Binge Mode Marvel in this season. So be sure to come back. This is our, our penultimate episode. One more to come. As always here on Binge Mode, spoiler warning. We will be going deep on details from this film all phases of the MCU to date in the wider Marvel canon. (laughs) 
So check out Flash's live stream for glimpses of Tower Bridge because it's time to head to London right after this. Knock the monkey! No, wait, I didn't... Oh, man. Mal, don't invoke her name. But please invoke the plot points because it's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in Spider-Man Far From Hope by opening the Bifrost and accessing the knowledge of the Nine Realms. That might be the last Nine Realms of the season. Oh. Now I'm getting sad already. All right. Focus, Ruben. (laughs) Mexico. Nick Fury. Maria Hill driving to town in a well-placed That's right. Audi SUV. Looking great in a Q8. <laughs> what do they find? A scene of utter devastation. Locals contend that a cyclone with a face is responsible. And then, boom, suddenly in a puff of green smoke, is that Jake Gyllenhaal's music? <laughs> Mysterio. Welcome to the MCU. He tells the pair, they don't want any part of this fight, and then begins battling a rock monster. And all of this happens in about 14 seconds. Quite a start to this movie. <laughs> Cut to um, an in memoriam video set to Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, which pays tribute to the fallen heroes in the wake of the final battle against Thanos. I'm going to say it. This is one of my favorite scenes in the entire MCU. Oh, it's hilarious. It's really funny. This is absolutely, I overused the word. It's really funny. Absolutely iconic. (laughs) Midtown High news anchors Jason and Betty Brandt catch us up on the fallout from the blip, which returned the disappeared to existence five years later. Can I just, for one second, Mm. so Peter is still 16. Mm Mm-hmm. But Ned also blipped, right? That's why he's also All of the central age. figures in Spider-Man All of the Homecoming central figures. Isn't that, ed- isn't that interesting? All the central <laughs> figures yeah. snapped and blipped, including MJ, Ned, Betty Brandt, but none, and Flash, but none of the others did. Okay, I just wanted to get that clear. Yes. Everybody who needed to be in the next Spider-Man movie blipped. <laughs> Aunt Great May stuff. looks like she looks like she blipped. She might have gone backwards. Unbelievable stuff from from Aunt May. Just two hours and nine minutes of of May saying she's going to go check on the lasagna, and then Happy creepily licking his lips. <laughs> happy, <laughs> what a moment that is! Wow, Peter Parker, our guy Pete, yeah. he of the Peter Tingle. Love it. Renaming the Spidey sense, quite a move. Peter faces questions. Questions about his role in the Avengers. Questions about whether he as Mm Spider-Man is the next Tony Stark. He responds to a confusing and difficult situation in the way that so many of us do. We always talk about what makes heroes relatable. Jay, he ghosts. He just flat out ghosts on a conversation that he's not ready to have. (laughs) Ghosts on Nick Fury. Uh, And just to be clear, let's say this right now. It's not our first Nick Fury mention. It's already the second. But let's say it right now. We will be saying Nick Fury the entire time. We know it's actually Talos. For the sake of not having to every sentence say two names, we will be saying Nick Fury. Okay, now that that's established. (laughs) He goes on Nick Fury while preparing for the upcoming class trip to Europe. 
Nothing says summer vacation like a science trip to Venice. I mean, unbelievable! What is happening? Tech. Wow! Incredible budget for this school. Oh my lord! He has a six-part plan for how to woo MJ, and that's all he's focusing on. Okay, got to get close to his crush. That's right. Despite Ned's very convincing sales pitch about being a bachelor in Europe, May insists that Peter pack his suit, despite the fact that Peter just want a nice, relaxing vacation. Best to be prepared. He does not listen to her, but she smuggles it in there anyway. Great stuff. During the flight, a mishap leads MJ to sit not with Peter, but Brad Davis, who has matured it to a handsome hunk over the last five years. The perfume allergy ruse gone awry here on Ned. I know. Boy. The gang arrives in Italy and the students hit the streets of Venice. Peter buys a necklace for MJ. Later, as he's strolling the canals with her, a water elemental who, much in the same way that we are going to uh, (laughs) note that Nick Fury is actually Talos, the water elemental is an illusion, Mm -hmm. then attacks. Mm -hmm. Peter, despite not having his suit, springs into action only to get punched by what we know is a drone, but what appears to be a huge watery fist. Let me say something right away. Couple things. One. How does he get wet if it's a hologram? We know the whole Mysterio, the whole Beck-William dynamic is pairing the illusion with the real damage from the drone. So the drones are moving the water. I I buy that. Here's what I was going to say. One, love the Black Dahlia necklace bit and how many times they mention the murder and that being the real draw. Much like MJ later saying she can't wait to go to the Eiffel Tower because it's an antenna for an army of the insane. MCU MJ. Just MCU MJ elite. Absolutely. Two, Peter. Rocking an absolute classic. The Air Max One. Phenomenal. Three, they're kids, okay? They're teenagers. They've been through a lot. Almost all of them blipped. Not all of them, but most of them. Most of them. Most all of them. How do these kids not know that Peter is Spider-Man? He's running around in Venice in his own clothes with his backpack on, fighting the water elemental. In broad daylight. Well, I guess, you know, they were very careful yes, to show us they were shots ducking of how, and hiding. Uh, yeah, hiding and the water there was splattering There are spiderwebs all over the tower <laughs> that he attempted to keep intact. Come on, Brad, maybe instead of taking so many pictures of people in various states of undress in private rooms, look at right in front of you at the spider webs. Come on. Then Mysterio arrives on the scene to banish the water elemental. Water. Fire. Earth. That night. Fury trank darts Ned in the fucking neck. <gasps> Ned, Ned just trying to brush his teeth, purge himself of some of the bacteria after a long day of getting doused with <laughs> noxious canal water and text with Betty before bed, but got a trank dart instead. More than text. I mean, she came, she came to the room. She came knocking. It's true. You know, Ned did say, by the way, after the after the flight that this boy had become a man. Nick Fury blocked that cock. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (sighs) Fury takes Peter to meet Mysterio, a.k.a. Quentin Beck. Mysterio tells Peter he's from an extra dimensional version of Earth that was destroyed by the elementals. These 
hate to beings, see it. <laughs> you, hate, you hate to see it. It's not what you want. Who draw their power from the elements. Air, it's all right there in the name. Water. Fire. Now they're on this earth. Peter is so hyped about the idea of the multiverse, very much the avatar for MCU fans in that moment, even though this is ultimately a, a fake out on Beck's part. I still love the way the movie plays with the idea of the multiverse. Great stuff. Beck is defeated, he says, all but one. Fire, which destroyed his world. Eight, three, three. The fire elemental will next appear in Prague. Fury asks Peter to help. And Peter's like, my guy, I'm on vacation. Got to pass. I love the confidence from my guy. <laughs> but it turns out Peter doesn't have a choice. Fury has the school trip rerouted to Prague. On the drive, Peter begins exploring Edith, the AI <laughs> housed in a pair of sunglasses that has access to basically all of Stark's tech and equipment, including numerous attack satellites uh, mm -hmm. with robust counter surveillance and hacking technology. Wait, are you telling me that our dearly departed and beloved, to be clear, Tony Stark has once again gifted a terrifying yeah. weapon to a child? Yeah, I'm saying that I'm saying that if Peter <laughs> like says the wrong thing, he could nuke the earth. <laughs> Tony! It's very tough. <laughs> so sweet when he gives them Edith. But that, that part of it, once again, arming Peter with weapons of mass destruction, very tough. Giving him the glasses and the note, very sweet. As Taylor says at right. the end, touching. <laughs> I mean, like, off jump, forget the drone strike, which is horrific, but is well, essentially an accident. it takes Peter 15 seconds to launch a drone strike. Yeah. So, which tough is to like, forget, I, Let's, let's raise the Continue. barrier. Let's, let's increase some safeguards there. Theoretically, at least to me, as troubling, is the fact that he can just look at people and yeah. know what they're texting and doing yeah. on their phones? Is MJ texting? No, never mind. Don't look. It's wrong. Meanwhile, we see that Flash is saying, Mother, I haven't heard from your father in days. It's like, what? <gasps> this oh, is Flash. not... Peter should not have this ability. In fact, the fact that Tony had it I is know. extremely troubling. troubling. <laughs> extremely troubling, which is why I really believe like at some point in the future, future MCU plot lines will be we, you know, the government needs to control Tony's tech. Again, like, you know, is Tony's tech in safe hands? Yes, but also the safe hands are the hands of a child. But that's, I, I would imagine the government is going to be unhappy about that, especially when they find out that he, he almost murdered his classmates. <laughs> At a pit stop, one of Fury's agents, the seamstress, gives Peter a new suit. Brad witnesses the encounter and thinking Peter was about to get wet once again... <laughs> Takes a picture, which he then intends to use Outrageous. to show MJ to turn off any interest that MJ might have in Peter. This, I should add, is blackmail. And it is wrong. Very fucked up from Brad in multiple respects. Uh, don't take pictures of people who are in various states of undress with strangers in strange rooms, Brad. I mean, that's legitimately... <laughs> what that's, that's, that's illegal. Back on the bus, Peter uses Edith to accidentally launch a deadly, potentially this deadly drone strike on Brad. This is... <laughs> uh, then knocks out Flash during his actions to then destroy the drone, which he manages to do. Uh, and in the course of which he also manages to erase the photo from Brad's phone using Edith. 
Uh, he also shoots himself out of the sunroof of a bus by shouting, hey, look at the mountain goats. And once again, for the second time, an entire bus full of Midtown Tech students has absolutely no idea that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, despite him behaving as Spider-Man directly in front of them. I am concerned about the observational skills of this group of students. It's very Concerned. Very Peter and Mysterio have a heart-to-heart before the battle against the fire elemental, which will turn out to be a bit of a mistake considering... Have you finished your lemonade here, folks? Mr. Beck is actually a very, very, very high-tech con man with a grudge against his former boss, Tony Stark. His goal is to make himself look like a hero worthy of Tony's mantle, to get Peter to unlock Edith's protocols, hand them over to him. The ploy works. Peter gifts Edith to Beck, who plans to use Tony's infrastructure to power his illusions and turn himself into the greatest hero in the world. Peter goes for a walk with MJ, where she reveals that she knows he's Spider-Man because she's the only one in the class with a brain at She's all. paying a lick of attention. As evidence, she takes out a piece of damaged tech covered in webbing. It turns out to be part of a projector used to produce the elaborate and realistic holograms that Mysterio has been using to fool the world. Peter realizes that he has been duped into giving up Edith. At rehearsal for his Avengers level threat illusion. Every time I say illusion in this movie, I think of Arrested Development. (laughs) You don't have time for my illusions, Dad. Planned for London. Mysterio discovers that one of his drones missing a projector. William conveniently did not share this. Unbelievable work from William. Amazing to have him in this movie. And to flashback to one of our all-time favorite moments from Obadiah Stane. Stark! built this in a cave with a box of scraps. (laughs) I'm always so grateful that they play the box of scraps line too because they didn't have to give that to us, but they They did. They didn't have to do it. It's so good. I'm always torn on whether that's more of a joy or getting the... the barf scene from Civil War from Beck's perspective during the big oh twist reveal God. and seeing seeing the camera pans in and he just mouths the, the barf. <laughs> so good. I, I, on the one hand, listen, Tony has a history of, and the, the Starks in general have a history of, of not being great collaborators and great partners <laughs> with, uh, you know, the other very talented engineers and inventors that they have worked with in the past. That said, I have a feeling that Beck is leaving out some stuff that he got fired. It just feels like knowing what we know about Beck, he got fired for some other shit. I mean, (laughs) you know, this is a guy who when his own minions and stooges say to him, that's going to cause a lot of casualties. He's like, exactly. The more, the better. We need coverage. (laughs) Rebuild from the from the ashes that we cause. He's a he's deranged. Definitely. His entire scheme, because of this projector, is now at risk. That's evidence, as he points out. He very casually directs the drone fire right to William's head. Poor William, man. I'd like William to enjoy a quiet retirement away from this kind of high-stress environment. That's what I want for William, personally. I don't know. I don't know. I I think at this point, William needs to go to the pokey jail and be in there for a little while. I mean, like, well, I'm yeah, sorry that he got, I'm true. sorry that he, 
<laughs> I'm sorry that he, I'm sorry that he had such a bad experience working for Obadiah Stade, but I I don't think that's any excuse to then uh, like basically carry out terror attacks. Yeah, <laughs> you can't do it. Can't do that. Quentin uses Edith to search security camera feeds, and who does he see? Peter Parker with MJ has the projector. Peter, back to sides, has to die. He's all too happy so. to blame William for this, He's, by the way. His blood, blood is, is on your hands. His blood is on your hands. Again, yes, you shouldn't be doing this, but also I just yeah. I feel bad for him. Peter, dressed as the legendary night monkey, meets Nick Fury in Berlin, <laughs> but the meeting is an illusion. Beck takes out Fury, then using an elaborate and varied collection of psychedelic but very realistic holograms Amazing Peter into stepping in front of a high speed train but the train doesn't kill him because he's Spider-Man and this is his movie Peter wakes up somewhere <laughs> in the Netherlands he calls Happy Hogan who putting down the phone after jacking it to the thoughts of Aunt May goes to pick up Peter in a Stark jet and gives him a much-needed pep talk. Next stop, London. You can kit out your new suit on the way. Absolutely one of the best parts of the movie. Absolutely. Incredible stuff. Always just want to shout out to Peter and hope he'll hear me through the TV. Don't get right into the car with Nick Fury. He just pulled up. He didn't know you were coming. You know, know what Beck's it's, doing. Don't get in, yeah. Peter. But, you know, the Peter Tingle's a He's little He's a kid. He is a, he is a child. Yeah, lock on. High Again, stress environment. Of the various mistakes he's made, I would put that second underneath uh, handing over the keys to Stark's entire arsenal to Quentin Beck. <laughs> <laughs> Undeniably, one of the best moments in the movie is the identity check test they run and happy oh convincing Peter that it's really him by citing the moment when Peter ordered the adult movie at the hotel in Germany. I love it. Peter, let us introduce you to the internet, friend. <laughs> I know. Let me show you your phone for a second. In the big fight, Peter, with the help of his enhanced Spidey sense, or as May helpfully coins it, is Peter Tingle. <laughs> Uh, oh god unbelievable also with the help by the way of flash's live stream amazing moment when happy's like he said london bridge but i figured out what he meant great yeah. great london geography and history dunk on flash there i love that so much peter defeats beck retakes control of edith just in time to save happy betty Flash and MJ, not only from Beck's drones, but from their ongoing string of confessions to each other. <laughs> so imagine if that lasted just a minute longer. Steve, give us Petey Wales for Quentin Beck, who at least wants us to think he's dead. I don't feel so good. In the mid credit scene, Peter, now with a fresh new suit on, complete with underarm glider wings takes MJ for a exhilarating swing around the city. He drops her off outside Madison Square Garden. There, he sees a news report playing on the outdoor televisions, airing on dailybugle.net. 
in which he is framed, not only for the London drone attack, but for Mysterio's murder. And at the end of the video, Quentin Beck, with his dying, what we can only assume to be dying breaths, reveals that Spider-Man's true identity is Peter Parker. Dun, dun, dun. I love the parallel of Peter saying, what the f in a cutting off right yeah. before we hear fuck. Still no fuck uttered in the MCU. And that being exactly what May said at the end of Homecoming when she saw him as Spider-Man. What the yeah. f <laughs> Later, two, two just loaded stingers in this movie, by the way. That's right. Fury and Hill are driving in a Fury's Audi Q8. <laughs> <laughs> when we discover that they are in fact, the scrolls, Talos and Soren, who we can only assume have yet to name their child. Why do it now? <laughs> They're too busy. Ironically, and just deliciously, the shapeshifters were bamboozled by Mysterio's illusion. Great moment when <laughs> Soren is saying, you've got to call Fury and tell them what happened. And Talos is like, it's, it's honestly a bit embarrassing. <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing for a shapeshifter, but okay. The scrolls have been acting as, in essence, Fury's live-action LMDs while the ex-director is in space on a mission doing God knows what. No with idea. The scroll fleet, secret invasion. Let's go! I have so many questions about this. So many I know. questions. It's about honestly, this. I have no idea what he could be up to. It's just crazy. What is his mission? There's no humans around. It's Fury and like all scrolls. What is going on? How long has he been? Like, when did the switch occur? Is it really Fury at Tony's funeral? Now, there's the moment oh, when, when Taylor says to him, you know, we handed Peter the glasses a week ago, as you said. Does that mean that Fury himself actually received the glasses during the reading of the will and then gave them to Talos to hand over? Or was Talos the one at the funeral and has just been receiving instructions? I, I have so many questions. So many. I mean, how far back does it go? I wonder if Fury knew that Thunderbolt Ross was going to be at the funeral and so therefore sent Talos and Soren <laughs> just in case like uh, Thunderbolt for once in his life decided to have a backbone and try and arrest everybody. Fucking Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt having a backbone. You've, you've lost me all of a sudden just with that near <laughs> hypothetical. He tried to capture Bruce like on the, at the university. Dear sweet Lenny still working to recover from that from that yeah. series of events. Love the, before we realize exactly where Fury is, the <laughs> beach sim that he's sitting in has to be That's a Coulson so Tahiti Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. wink right there for people. There's just, there's just so much there. And again, now that we know that the Samuel L. Jackson, Ben Mendelsohn secret invasion show is coming. Just can't wait. Also, where was Hill? Where was real Hill? Because we know where, where real Fury real was. Hill? Is Hill I No idea where real Hill is. He's got to so be So many questions. Him, right? Yeah. Jason. Yes. Tony did a lot for us. He really did. So we owe it to him, to everybody. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's power up the arc reactor and the story. The defining theme of this episode is responsibility. Let's talk about the film's development. It was released in July 2019, the 11th and final film 
the phase three segment of the MCU saga. And the 23rd and final film of the Infinity Saga, creative team for the film. Produced by Kevin Feige and Amy Pascal, directed by John Watts. Written by Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, scored by Michael Giacchino, who's returning from Homecoming. Watts, McKenna, and Summers are returning for Spidey 3, which after the Sony Marvel arrangement nearly came apart in late summer 2019. Anxious moments for all of us. Never forget, because we were there. We with were with Tom. Tom Holland on that weekend, interviewing him. We were with Tom Holland Never hours, forget it. <laughs> hours after it <laughs> fell apart. In retrospect, I guess we should have known they would have figured something out. There's just too much money on the table for them to not have figured it out, which they did. Thankfully. Currently, the film is currently slated for phase four and December 2021. What about our cast? Our pals from Spider-Man Homecoming and the wider MCU return. A few notable new faces. Jakey Jills, Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> looking great, looking handsome. Quentin Beck, a.k.a. Mysterio. Beautiful Quentin Beck. You've seen him in person. I have seen him. He yeah. looks super good in person. <laughs> and he really brings a fun energy to this role. Just like a yeah. dick Aggrieved asshole energy. I love the, you know, like, I love the, listen, is the cape ready line? The cape sequence is tremendous. I could literally be shaking hands with the queen. And so close on the heels of that is when he asks why the drones aren't firing. Fire! All the drones! All the drones! Immediately! (laughs) Or even just like in the the, uh, rehearsal section when he's just like no it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel right i know i got it double the damage run it again oh you want to double it up yeah double the damage (laughs) i know it's so good when the way he realizes the projector is missing the way he's like shaking his wrist what's what's happening what's going on with this what's happening here what's 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 going on here what's this he really is great in the movie the little obviously it's all part of the the ruse to kind of hook us and and peter but i love like the bar scene with Peter in particular yeah. when he's getting Edith, when he's fully ensnaring him in the trap. Yeah. The, ooh, Peter says he wants yeah. a kiss. And they're like, how many yeah. lemonades have you had? Really playing up the like hip older brother, cool uncle kind of vibe. It's, it's great. It is really good. JB Smooth is Mr. Dell. He was this cast an because of it. This is, this is. <laughs> we need a dramatic ep- musical entry to this bullet point this here. This is an unbelievable factoid. We'd say give us a drum roll, but it's more like give us the sound of smooth power steering and <laughs> tires that work for you in any weather. <laughs> J.B. Smooth, first of all, was cast because of an Audi commercial tie-in in Homecoming <laughs> in which J.B. Smooth plays Peter's driving instructor using an Audi prototype. The Audi impact on the MCU is absolutely <laughs> real. I hope everybody got a free Audi. As executive producer Eric Hauserman Carroll told Slash Films Ben Pearson during a Far From Home set visit, we are adding to the cast J.B. Smooth as a character named Mr. Dell. Together they constitute the least capable group of chaperones ever to be sent to Europe with a bunch of kids, obviously. Martin Starr was hilarious in the first movie. I love the obviously. Obviously, Martin Starr was hilarious in the first movie. He's got, 
<laughs> when we knew we wanted a teacher to be escorting these kids across Europe, he was our first choice. When we decided to round it out, the idea to cast J.B. Smooth actually came out of this great Audi commercial, which... Uh, we just found so creative and inspiring. It's like unbelievable. J.K. Simmons, of course, back as J. Jonah Jameson, reprising his uh, Sony Marvel role, but joining the MCU canon for the first time. More on this later in the six. Remy High as Brad Davis, looking super handsome. You might recognize him from the crazy Asians who are also rich. Zach Barack who plays one of Peter's classmates, became the first openly transgender actor to appear in a MCU film. This is, once again, of course, a coming-of-age story. We talked in our Spider-Man Homecoming pod about how the coming-of-age story was so central to the voice and vibe and mission of the movie as central as it being a superhero movie, really. It's a high school story again. This time, it's also a road trip movie, delightfully. I love it. But Watts has another genre that he cites when he talks about the film. Here's one emblematic quote. This is from an interview he did with IndieWire's Kate Erbland when discussing specifically the post credit stingers. Quote, I think about Far From Home as a con man movie. There are so many layers of deception throughout the whole movie that it just felt right to do one last little reveal, one last little twist at the very end. It all felt on theme. I love how deliberate Watts is in terms of thinking about the genres of these films. And that's been one of the really fun things talking about the movies across the MCU, I think, the genre variants that keeps them so fresh. That's been really fun. I I really agree. And like and and just to the degree of difficulty to then marry these various uh, solo characters who appear in films with these widely varying genres into one cohesive universe various crossover films is really amazing, really incredible, uh, uh, just a really incredible achievement. You know, you mentioned combining things into one cohesive universe. It makes me think of the tomato meter. Not sure about you. There's so much care that went into it and that we have to appreciate what it's done. 90% among critics, 95% among audience members. They loved it. People love the movie. They absolutely loved it. The... Box office results certainly back that up. 390.5 million domestically. 741.4 million internationally. 1.13 billion dollars globally. That makes Far From Home, for those counting, for those keeping a tally while listening, the ninth MCU movie to cross the billion dollar threshold. Joining, of course, Endgame, Infinity War, The Avengers, Age of Ultron, Black Panther, Iron Man 3, Civil War. Captain Marvel. It's also Sony's highest grossing film of all time. Pretty wild. Wow. So before we get into a little more of the plot and the theme, do you like the movie, Jason Concepcion? I do like the movie. I I think it's delightful. Um, I think it really captures, just as Homecoming did, the kind of classic energy of Spider-Man as a coming-of-age story high school hijinks, so much of the drama of uh, Peter's romantic life and his social life and his home life with Aunt May is captured here in this movie, as is the kind of the real uh, excitement and freedom of swinging across the city. You know, that it's only a small moment, but the final scene when he's swinging across the city 
with MJ is like the kind of aspirational superhero moment that uh, as a comics fan, I'm always looking for when I open up a Spider-Man book. I, like, what is it like to f- to just fly across the city in that way, to swing from the canyons and really captured it really well? I was so ready to bet against Mysterio being an effective supervillain just because he he really is such a weird character who is not like a particularly good he doesn't he can't really fight everything he does is an elaborate con he needs so much support staff and equipment to carry out like the things that he does I couldn't imagine how they would be able to pull it off and they really did it uh, wonderfully and then the kind of uh, it's always darkest before the dawn sequence where he bamboozles Peter into stepping in front of the train is kind of like what you always imagine in your mind when you're reading a Mysterio centric adventure. What you always what I had always pictured, at least the illusions being like and it was it was fantastic. I, that part of it was really great. And there were so many like really fun reveals. The scroll reveal is it's amazing. <laughs> is awesome. And it, you know, it so difficult to come on the heels of Endgame. And you know, while it is while it is the last film of phase three, it's essentially a big it's a starting point because Endgame is such a definitive ending point. It carries out those duties wonderfully with a great cliffhanger at the end. Like I, Peter's <laughs> yeah. name is just out there now. I can't wait to see where this goes. Um, and, and it wonderfully sets up Peter as kind of like the inheritor of Tony Stark's mantle. I, I thought it was a really, really, really fun movie. And the performances are fantastic. You know, Zendaya is like, brings this really cynical like almost weirdly world weary uh, energy mm-hmm. to the movie that is wonderful. Tom Holland is everything you want from Spider-Man. It, it was, it's just super fun. And Jake Gyllenhaal like crushes it, crushes it yeah. as this really grimy, like Hollywood style villain that is just all about fooling the entire world into thinking that he is a hero. It's it, I really enjoyed it. Super enjoyed it. Completely agree with everything you said. It's a great one. An underrated one, I think, actually. I think it is a little underrated. I mean, he's not in the costume a lot. It's like he's, you know, like there's, it's not your typical superhero story. Yeah. And, you know, I think because it's certainly a a plot, given the various reveals and, and layers to it that rewards repeat viewing. So, yeah. Maybe part of it is that I've I've grown fonder of it over time. I think also <laughs> this part of our binge mode Marvel journey. I'm such an absolute fucking emotional wreck right now that I just <laughs> am like so grateful for every second of these characters and talking about it with you. <laughs> to be honest, that I was Same watching how. this like <laughs> things bloody, just completely overwhelmed <laughs> by like. <laughs> The weight of Tony's legacy and the impact yeah. of that on Peter and the world that Tony left behind. I think that the movie, it, it had to do so many difficult things. You know, you mentioned following Endgame, this sort of balancing act, this simultaneous duty to 
wrap up phase three to to give us the catharsis that we need in a coda like that, the time to really reflect and process everything that had happened before just jumping into the next thing. But also part of Spider-Man's role, especially having come into the MCU when he did, of being one of the guides for us into this new era of storytelling. We're going to talk a little bit more about that factor following Endgame in, in a couple of minutes, but it wasn't actually just that. Homecoming was just an absolute delight for people as we talked about at a length in our homecoming pod, mm-hmm. how to make Spider-Man fresh and the MCU spin the seamless incorporation into this larger universe. You know, the sophomore slump can be a real thing, right? For sure. I mean, we've for seen sure. that in, in the MCU itself plenty of times. Yeah. And I think avoiding that was important and, and hard. And then this movie came out after Spider-Verse and Spider-Verse was absolutely a sensation. And a real masterpiece. It is. It's masterpiece is not overstating it. It is an absolute phenomenal work of art. And so all of those things, I think, were weights working against Far From Home and yet it still manages to be really enjoyable, really fulfilling, both emotionally and in terms of just, hey, it's really fun to spend two hours watching a Spider-Man movie. I think that the villain, we're going to talk a lot more later today about Mysterio, back the connection to Stark and Tony's legacy from that perspective, but also the idea of truth, fake news, surveillance, the modern villain for a modern movie-going audience. Absolutely. I just love the unapologetic high school teen energy and how that was you know, really works actually in harmony to heighten the themes, the, the the grief, the burden that Peter is feeling. Those are things that, like there's a version of this movie that doesn't work where you say, how could the character who spent all of his prior appearances in the MCU basically begging for a shot, shirk that even for a second? Yeah. But you don't ever find yourself thinking that because I think that, it feels so authentically of a piece with every step of his journey and the way that a character who's that age, who has suffered and lost the things that Peter has, would respond not only to his personal feeling of Mm -hmm. yearning for mentorship, for friendship, for the parental figure, but what it means when you have to make the shift in your life from being somebody who's trying to access something, trying to participate in that thing that always feels like it's just out of reach to you to being the person everybody else looks to and how heavily that would weigh on you. And I think that that's actually, that's a lot of threads and they all stitch together right there on, on Tony's plane into that beautiful new (laughs) Spidey suit. Don't they? I love it. It's one of my 25 favorite MCU movies. Jay. I think what you're I think what you're saying in terms of like uh, uh, Peter getting to a place where he would give up Edith and would give up the, the the mantle that Tony had passed to him, I think also speaks to the strangeness of the developments that have befallen regular people on Earth in the age of the Avengers with the various alien invasions and uh, interdimensional portals opening over the city. There's been all these weird things. Peter is absolutely primed as are, you know, many counterintelligence professionals, although obviously Talos and and Soren are, are 
not Fury and Hill, but they're working with various people who are professional. The people of Earth are primed to believe that there could be a multiverse, that there would be a last hero who uh, comes from such an interdimensional world and he has come here to try and defend this Earth from uh, this existential threat. Like that's an abs- that's absolutely the thing people would be ready to believe in. It speaks to the strange weirdness and and incredible adventures that have befallen Earth in this time and also speaks to the effectiveness of Mysterious illusions. All right, let's start with something that we both just raised, the really titanic challenge of the following Endgame, some of which was logistical in terms of how the film was going to be marketed, et cetera, which we'll, we'll circle back to in a, in a moment, and some of which is very much of a piece with the theme today, the responsibility, right? For the characters in the movie, a meta sense for the continued evolution of the MCU. You know, and, and in many ways... Uh, Avengers Endgame, as we have discussed now (laughs) at length (laughs) on this pod, is the conclusion of the Infinity Saga, right? That really is the finale. That's our farewell to Tony. That's our farewell to our version of Cap. Our farewell to Nat. Our farewell to that moment in time with the original Avengers. And even though it's the first film that follows that grand and often heart-wrenching conclusion far from home is not as we just mentioned the official launch of phase four it is the actual technical conclusion of phase three which i think just bears repeating because it is a it's a it's a specific deliberate choice right and even though so much of far from home hinges on this idea of of looking ahead of figuring out what comes next and and how and who, who will inherit the mantle from Iron Man, both inside of of the storytelling universe for the characters and in this meta sense of what the Tony Stark character and Robert Downey Jr. as the, one of the faces of the MCU alike meant to the MCU over its first decade of vibrant, the hot rod red and golden life. Yes. It's actually a really perfect, really perfect and apt fit here at the end of phase three because it's a perfect home despite Peter being far from home for a moment of grief and reflection and the evolution of that introspection into into new purpose, channeling that into new belief and direction. Because phase four is not ultimately a reset despite how many new things are going to come and how many new characters and new universes will be introduced. It's a continuation. And Peter Parker is one of the characters who's best suited to ease us into that because he's so wholly a part of the future, but he also has roots, or iron spider limbs at least, anchored in the past. He misses Tony fiercely. And for Peter, that morning is really, it's inextricable from how he thinks about his own life and his own responsibility as a superhero. It's that classic Spider-Man line and idea, right? With great power comes great responsibility. But for Peter here, that already heavy burden is just drenched, not not just in the uh, bacteria-rich Venice Canal water, though, also that, but in the heightened awareness that he's no longer just putting this pressure on himself. The world is putting it on him now, and, and that is different. That is a different equation entirely. You know, every painting of Tony that he passes, whether it's the art on the wall in his classroom or the mural on a, on a New York City block or the billboard in the airport and these gallivanting about Europe, reminders 
everywhere. And his journey in this film becomes at once the on-ramp for the continuation of his story and that fitting coda for assessing and really understanding what Tony's impact was on the world that he helped to build, that he helped to launch. Now, it was not an easy movie to market, considering, again, its placement coming after Endgame. That was absolutely part of the challenge, announcing marketing a film that would then hit theaters after Endgame. For instance, uh, there is a spoiler warning for Endgame at the beginning of the second Far From Home trailer in which Tom Holland appears on a set telling people, hey, uh, you're going to see things that will spoil uh, Avengers Endgame. Uh, The movie also had tonal challenges, how to answer some crucial post-Endgame questions, but also exist in the teen angst high school movie Spider-Man tonal universe that was absolutely key to homecoming success. Yes. It can't just be endgame cleanup, but it has to address the things that are going to be on people's minds. That's right. The film's blip details are emblematic. The movie has a lot of work to do here, but the way it lays out expositionally what happened when people came back is done in a light Spider-Man universe kind of way. For example, I Will Always Love You playing over the Marvel logo and Betty and Jason's Midtown Tech Memorium in general is a perfect example of this kind of tonal balance, <laughs> striking uh, striking the tone mm. between lighthearted but also uh, paying homage to the death and loss that was so important to the uh, tenor of Endgame. And actually just helping us understand the mechanics of what happened when people came back. Like, it's our first real insight into what transpired the montage is so purposefully and wonderfully amateurish with the stolen getty still on over one of the over one of the photos it's clear that they just like screenshotted a getty image and like dropped it directly into the montage the way on the natasha's picture you can see like the top half of a sentence of words beneath her photo like they cropped it wrong it's so funny and then, of course, we get to see uh, in the in the footage from the gym basically how it worked, how the blipped worked. Now, right. we've since seen that again in Spoiler WandaVision Episode 4, and we get a name for this event, the blip. The Sue Lorman, Brad Davis, five-year time jump explanation through teenaging with high schooling helps uh, crystallize this gap in time for us. Where are you on this still? You, you expressed a few weeks ago that... I mean, obviously, the fact that the entire class... Yeah. specifically that that interacted closely with Peter and were main characters <laughs> in Homecoming, all were snapped and then blipped. It's fine, but it's like obviously just one of those things where it's like, okay, well, we can't, why recast? Let's just make yeah. it so everybody blipped. What do you think would be weirder if you're that age? The Brad Davis corollary where somebody who was just five years younger than you is now in your class and is your age or somebody who you were friends with in a a hypothetical world where not every single one of Peter's friends blipped. I think it would be college. (laughs) Which of those is weirder? I think it, well, like the five years of trauma and loss, nonwithstanding, I think the weirder move, I think it would be weirder to come back and everybody is little kids are now your age and everybody you knew is a fucking adult. 
Because now it's like the people you would be dating, you have to get over the fact that they were like 11 when you knew them. Yeah. <laughs> like just a second ago, they were 11. And everybody oh, who uh, you knew previously is now like at college drinking and like having like adult lives and stuff. It, it would be so, so that part <laughs> of it would be so, so weird. And obviously like it, it, so it would suck to be there too. Because you're just living through this really awful fucking time. <laughs> Horrible. Good old Mr. Harrington. Just re- recovering from his wife faking her death yeah. during the blip. Tough one. I love when uh, Flash is drinking on the plane and MJ dunks on him by saying, oh, ma'am, he blipped. So he's not actually 21. And he's, he's just using the birth year on his license. It's which so would indicate funny. that he's a different age than he is like little details like that in the movie are really great and help i think crystallize just the surreal nature of basically every moment of these people's lives yeah and then of course on a, on a more serious side through may's housing group and and the work she's doing in the community we get an idea of how complicated this situation would be because uh, many people who blipped back discovered that there are, you know, five years had passed, their homes are now either rented or or bought or otherwise uh, being inhabited by other people. What do you do now? Legally, how do you handle this? I think a lot of those questions and the complicated nature of what to do with 50% of the population that disappeared and now returns five years later uh, is really fascinating. I think it is obviously fertile ground for the MCU to explore going for- forward. Absolutely. I mean, the you know, even the scenes of the marching band reappearing in the gym, like so much of the way this is presented at the top of the movie is is comical and something where you can kind of smile and appreciate the, again, surreal nature of this entire experience, like Jason in the in the video, like, yeah, my little brother is now older than me and Betty's like, yeah, it's math, you know? And then it's just little things like that. But <laughs> but I, th- I I really appreciate the the May plot line because it is important to oh, it's super think important. about yeah, it's a, how yeah. many, how uh, the, the extent of the trauma, whether you had lived through this, whether you blipped back, the number yeah. of circumstances that people would have to contend with, the, the hardships yeah. that people would have to contend with. And... You know, we we talked about some of the some of the scenarios and thought experiments on our on our Endgame pod, but just seeing May working in the community to try to help people who didn't have a home, who came back and didn't have a home, or maybe people who came back and found that their family had another family now. I mean, the list is you know infinite of of scenarios. It's it's a, it's a that 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 scene in the movie is mostly there to show us that Peter's uncomfortable in the spotlight, but the the May aspect of it is is really important. I'm really glad it's in the movie. Let's talk about Peter's evolution specifically for for a few minutes here. The weight of that next Iron Man label and the presence of that next Iron Man question, and it's worth contrasting where Peter is, the place that he is in at the start of this film versus where we left him in Homecoming, obviously accounting for the fact that he was in other movies in between. You know, the film ended, Homecoming ended, with Peter passing on Tony's offer, right? Remember, he's he's not in 
the Iron Spider suit at the start of this movie, Far From Home, because he chose to be, he's in it because he responded instinctually in a second to fucking Ebony Maw landing in his donut <laughs> ship in the streets of New York. Arm hair rises, distracts his classmates, sprees, and ends up in space. And then Tony has that Friday deploy the Iron Spider suit to basically save Peter as he's entering the vacuum of space. The end of Homecoming saw Peter wanting to go back to his life. But because of the blip, because of Thanos, because of the Battle of Earth and Tony's death, he feels right now like he doesn't have that choice anymore. You know, even Ned, the one of one of the characters certainly who knows the most about Peter's life and Peter's work as Spider-Man and is very supportive and wonderful. A guy in the chair, love it. He says, Peter, please, we're all counting on you when they're in Prague. Or consider the assembled group of people asking Spider-Man questions at May's fundraising event. Asking if he's the, the head Avenger now or, or Nick Fury's attempts to reach him. You know, let's go, let's go through some of the questions, actually, that that group throws at him. And I will just observe, much like how absolutely inane it is that none of Peter's classmates except MJ deduce that Peter is Spider-Man. It's wild. I, I have some it's questions for what appears to be a group of journalists who can't piece together that the clearly teenage boy speaking out of Spider-Man's outfit standing next to May Parker, who has a nephew his age. It's like, can we do some fucking dot connecting here, folks? The degree of separation is, is... There is no degree of separation. How has no one figured this out? Use the voice disguiser that is built into the suit. Why are we not using that? I know. Peter. It is so cute because it heightens when he's like, <clears throat> and you think he's yeah, going to do it. Like, and then he's like, put the put the voice disguiser <laughs> on, Peter. I love it so much. What a scene. But think of some of the questions that, that Scrum throws his way. Are you the head Avenger now? If aliens come back, what are you going to do? And he says, does anyone have any neighborhood questions? I know. It's like, sorry. It's, we've gone beyond that at this point. I love moments like that because... In Homecoming, Peter was the one who thought the neighborhood was too small, and Tony had to talk him into focusing on that. What is it like to take over for Tony Stark? That's another question. Those are some big shoes to fill. Where does Peter go after that barrage of questions? Outside. To this theoretical piece of the remove that he can access. Up on the roof, away from prying eyes and away from this sense of like interrogation under the microscope constantly of other people's expectations. And what does he see right away when he turns his head? Tony, an Iron Man mural on the outside wall of the next building. Just such, such an incredible little moment where you feel how much Peter misses him and it hits you in the heart, but you also feel the pressure that he's under with Tony literally looming over him. And neither of those sensations detracts from each other. Like you don't have to feel bad either as Peter or as the viewer thinking, man, that must be like a really heavy weight to shoulder. But also, holy shit, I see Tony painted on those bricks and I, I break down into tears like every time. It just hits so hard every time. And... Again, you think about just this this homecoming, far from home shift. 
before that choice that Peter made at the end when Happy drove him up to New Avengers facility, he just wanted to be treated like an adult. He wanted more trust. He wanted more opportunity. He wanted more responsibility. You know, recall the churro call? He's, he's doing yeah. his end of shift reports for, for Happy on the phone. What did he say? I just feel like I could be doing more. And here he's really trying deliberately to recede from that. Tough for Cap. No mural? No mural for Captain America? Presumed dead? Nothing? I will say the discrepancy, obviously, Tony and Peter have this relationship. So the movie is very much through that lens. But given that the immemorium implies that many people in the world think Cap is dead, which we'll talk about more later in the six, you think you'd see a few, a few more Cap murals around? We can't get a cat. Can't get you one think? Cap mural? <laughs> I, thought, uh, I, thought Cap, I thought Cap did a lot. Nothing. No <gasps> Where black Cap murals. Come yeah, on. Yeah. It's Good very Lord. tough. Folks, come on. In this movie, Peter just wants to be a regular kid. I think it's a I think it's a very actually affecting statement about how traumatic the final battle against Thanos Absolutely. and all his forces was that it's like, okay, let's bring it small time again. Let me just like work in the neighborhood. Let me just be a regular kid. Like that was that was more than enough. Homecoming was also anchored in teenage life, the coming of age tale, but the focus was the inverse of what it is from far from home on the road trip. Back then the rhythms of teenage life, Ned's reminder of a Spanish test felt divorced <laughs> from Peter's new reality. Now there are things yeah. he longs for because the void people expect him to fill. The shoes of Tony Stark the path of the Avengers is so massively vast and it must be so weird for him because, you know, he's a celebrity now mm -hmm. and people don't have any idea that he's a kid. It must just seem normal if you're a regular person, fan of the Avengers, regular person on the street to think, oh, yeah, Spider-Man can uh, be the head of the Avengers now. He can handle it. But like, but Peter, of course, knows the truth. He is a kid. He's this a child. This would be a matter, of course, for a hero in that role. This is what this person will do for me. Yes. Uh, right. And th there's no way to bridge that gap of understanding. And of course, he's grieving Tony so fully, but that grief cannot exist in private or in any kind of state of quiet. It comes with endless reminders and stakes. Take Jason, our news anchor's uh, outburst. Pray nothing crazy happens again because are the Avengers even like a thing anymore? Does anyone even have a plan? Imagine that anxiety on a daily basis from just regular people. It would be insane. It would be a very, very bracing. Samuel L. Jackson put this quite nicely on the Stepping Up featurette on the DVD saying of Peter, quote, he can't just be your typical neighborhood Spider-Man anymore. He belongs to a greater story. But of course, that's what Peter wants to return to. And as we know, Peter is wired to help. That's what he wants to do. He wants to be a hero. He feels that responsibility. He feels an ingrained duty forged in the in the traumatic experiences of his own life to act and to uphold the responsibility of putting on a superhero suit, of being Spider-Man. Remember, as a foundation, Peter's words to Tony in Captain America Civil War, quote, when you do the things that I can, but you don't, and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you. He has not stopped feeling that way because he wants to go to Venice, but the desires in his heart are at war with each other here. And like, certainly, of course, Peter doesn't want to stop being a hero, but like it's, he just fought in a massive battle to save the world. The guy needs a break. <laughs> like, and he wants to take a break. And that is absolutely so natural and so earned here. Part of what is so effective 
and captivating about the movie is that the things that Peter wants are so normal, right? Yeah. Vacation, arrest, time with the person that he likes. You know, the, 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 the relationship with MJ that he is pursuing is at the heart of what he's looking forward to in vacation. And again, it's like, okay, of course, Peter's a 16-year-old kid, right? <laughs> Fighting villains as he's prepping for the trip. The six-step plan that he has, this <laughs> level of intent and deliberation that he applies to being Spider-Man put toward this just regular teenage thing. I have a crush, right? What am I going to do about it? Well, he's going to get that dual headphone adapter for the plane, going to get that black dolly necklace because he knows MJ likes the murder. Ned's absolutely impeccable response to Peter unveiling this plan to him is, we're going to be bachelors in Europe, Peter. Look, I may not know much, but I do know this. Europeans love Americans. (laughs) Of course they do. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing stuff. Peter immediately has to contend with the fact that Ned and Betty hated off on the plane. They have found what Peter wants. Peter's like, what the fuck, man? You said you wanted to be a bachelor in Europe. Ned says, Peter, those were the words of a boy. This is a great, it was such a great twist. And that boy meant a woman. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Again, like, I don't know. I just find... Things like this in the movie so winning because they're so relatable. You know, how, mm-hmm. who, who watching this hasn't had some sort of experience like this where you're like, man, this is the thing I want. And then the person you've been talking about it with gets it before you do. And That's Peter's so a good great. friend. Like, he's so happy for Ned. He's supportive. But you just see it on his face. It's like, what? What happened here? Why can't I just experience something that's just a part of the, the fabric of, of life? The Brad rivalry. Another great example of something that whether or not Peter had to deal with the fact that Nick Fury has hijacked his vacation, as they put it, any teenager has some version of, any person has some version of the rivalry. Brad, you know, we were talking about this from Peter's perspective, but MJ is just so, so excellent. And MJ has this unapologetic sense of self, but also there are those really tender moments later in the film where this character who's presented as, you know, so assured says to Peter, like, I, I have a hard time getting close to people. And they all allow you to fall more fully into the web with those characters and, and invest in their, not only Peter's work as a hero, but who they, who they are as people and the relationships that we're forming with each other. I love the moment where Peter says, you look really pretty. And therefore I have value. <laughs> absolutely (laughs) incredible i love it so good she also of course you know we've dunked on the other midtown tech students for not figuring out who peter is but she gets a lot of credit because she solves it who peter is the fact that he's spider-man great line when she says to ned he didn't tell me i figured it out like a long time ago picked up the projector which of course is the thing that ultimately unlocks peter's discovery of Bex subterfuge and deception. Amazing stuff. MJ enters the FOS army. Peter's real anxiety in Prague is not missing vacation, at least not the only thing, at least. It's putting his friends, his classmates in real mortal peril. MJ, Ned, Betty, all of them. The opera plan is 
to keep them in a safe area away from the danger. <laughs> Four hours? <laughs> It's amazing. Just like Steve after, before, and during a binge mode session. (laughs) The agony of Peter not being able to sit and watch with MJ after she tells him she'll save him a seat is a really heartbreaking moment. And then, of course, the vacation. Uh, He, Peter, again, has faced some dangers that no one can even, that people can't even imagine. How can you even share these things with people? And then the, 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 he was on Titan you could, battling Thanos. You could not, you literally could not share them with people. And then the people who he would share them with, Tony, are gone. You can't even talk to them anymore. He says to May, I need a break. And the fact that Peter still has to listen to his teachers, like uh, Mr. Harrington on the plane, just also heightens the divide. It must be so jarring to have to talk about these quotidian concerns with people when you were, again, literally just on Titan fighting Thanos. It's one of the more interesting aspects, I think, to the MCU that Peter's the only one with the, with the secret identity. All the rest of them are known people who go by their names, you know, like they can talk openly about the dangers they face, the interdimensional threats that they have to defend the earth from uh, being a super soldier, fighting Johann Schmidt. They can just speak openly about those things. Peter has to make small talk with teenagers when he has seen Thanos drop a planet on someone <laughs> from up close. That just me. That just must be uh, the the kind of like emotional dichotomy that must create is would just be so fracturing. And of course, he can't escape Tony even on the trip because the in-flight entertainment options are all superheroes, including, ironically, a, a doc called Hunting Hydra and Heart of Iron, the Tony Stark story on the world's greatest hero. And of course, the global setting also exacerbates Peter's sense of unease. He's not the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He's not in the neighborhood. He's not in New York. He's not in his own country. He's globetrotting. He's in a place that's uh, you know, weirdly more foreign than Titan was, where there was no culture, where everything was destroyed. There was just a moonscape. There was no culture to try and interact with. Mm-hmm. Seeing all the places there are dangers, but also the places there are chances to help and seeing all the places where people miss Tony and need him or someone like him, a hero of their own. I think also just seeing how big the world is, right? Like... Tells Happy had never been on a plane before. And so you know that Peter hadn't, uh, before literally going to space, hadn't, you know, and before going to Germany, (laughs) brought into civil war for the Avengers, hadn't explored, hadn't traveled. And it's, you know, again, when when he's he's starting out and feeling himself and flexing and trying to do more, and uh, why won't people let me do more? His frame of reference is all about what people are depriving him of and not allowing him to access. And this, this trip, going to Venice, going to Prague, going back to Berlin, of course, old hat for him being in Germany. It's just here are the places where people need help. Here are the places that looked up to Tony because Tony and the Avengers, you know, Tony's whole shield around the world thing, as Cap was all too happy to remind him, didn't really work out. Wasn't really as we were happy to remind him the whole run the most well-intentioned plan as Quentin Beck is happy to remind everyone here when he unleashes his drones. But 
Iron Man was never just a hero for New York or Malibu, right? He was a, right. a hero a, for, for the globe. Earth is closed today. Earth's mightiest hero. Yeah. And I think that the more places Peter goes, the more that really crystallizes for him. And it only it only exacerbates that 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 sense of, oh my God, this task is so much bigger than he had ever appreciated before simply because he had never had a, a way to see and glimpse and understand it before. Well, it's like he wanted to do more, obviously, in in Homecoming, but that was before he realized what that more is. And then he understood the intense global interest that would come with being one of those people who quite publicly helped save the entire world. He had almost made that choice at the end of Homecoming before he even saw that. You know, just the battle with Vulture and, oh my God, my my girlfriend's dad is this villain and all of these things that I think reinforced for him, you know, the, the ferry incident and his lecture from Tony that reinforced for him that there was a lot he had to learn and that that was actually okay. That that's part of what life is, whether or not a radioactive spider bit you. It's just important to understand what you don't know and what you still have to learn as it is to be able to recognize and show other people what you can do. Like, I wish Peter had booted up Hunting Hydra, actually, which I presume (laughs) was zero minutes long because nobody ever hunted Hydra and that was part of the problem. But so much of the MCU is about the good that the heroes did. And so much of it about it is so much of it is about the mistakes that they made. And that's actually, as we've talked about a lot, why it's compelling. And I love what you just said about how unique Peter's situation is. The one who hasn't taken off the mask for the rest of the world to see, because it does really reinforce again, just where he is in his life that his whole life is ahead of him still. And the choices that you would have made, the part of your life that you would have lived that maybe would allow you to be comfortable with something like that, he just hasn't gotten there yet. And again, that's that's okay. That's part of what is joyful and interesting about his journey and his sense of discovery. But also, like you're saying, the fact that there's no one around that he could talk to. You know, one of the scenes in the movie that's really comical, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes, is when he goes through the list of the other Avengers. Like... Thor, Doctor Strange, Captain Marvel, and there's an answer for where everybody is, which serves an actual plot function, of course. But there's no one for Peter to talk to. There's no one to try to help him process what he's feeling, at least no one in that hero mold. Ultimately, I think that's part of what makes the movie full of such heart when somebody like, say, Happy steps into that role for him. And and there are various examples of, of this desire of Peter's to just kind of like escape it back into a normal life. Uh, when he tells Ned, I left my suit in my hotel room, and Ned says, why? Because I'm on vacation, Ned. In the Stepping Up featurette, Summers spoke about how the trip amplifies Peter's sense of the stakes and of what people need from him now. Quote, no matter where he goes, the world is going to be different. Fury slash Talos's bitch, please, you've been to space line is absolutely hilarious and iconic. (laughs) Peter's response, Mr. Fury, this all seems like big time, you know, huge superhero stuff. And I mean, I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, sir. Bitch, please, you've been to space. I know, but that was on accident. And it's just another reminder of Peter, who once wanted to expand and extend, is just seeking to shrink things down a little. It'll be fascinating to see how the uh, reveal of his identity affects all this. I just realized that because of the events of WandaVision, they could actually one more day this and like have Wanda either erase it or if Mephisto is involved in WandaVision, have Mephisto erase it. 
I don't mean to bring that up. It's extremely, again, extremely controversial Spider-Man story and Spider-Lore, mostly because of what it meant for uh, his relationship with MJ. But that's on the table and, and just fascinating to see like where they could go with that. And then there's the Peter Tingle. The Peter Tingle isn't just the MCU's spin on the Spidey sense. It's a way of showing how Peter's inner conflict uh, manifests. He is just kind of jammed up. He's like, uh, much like the Hulk, much like Banner, rather, not being able to turn into the Hulk, he's not able to fully let loose, to access his full powers. The uh, banana to the face sequence is a great example of this. Normally, <laughs> what would happen? You'd throw, something, you, you'd throw something at Peter, <laughs> whether he was looking at it or not, or whether it was the back of his head, and he would just catch it. Right. Without even looking at it. Not this time that the banana hits him right in the face. So sorry. I thought you could sense that with your Peter Tingle. <laughs> it's so funny. And then Happy's uh, Happy's He's so pained command before the big fight. You get that Peter Tingle back online. In an interview <laughs> with the raps, Brian Welk, Summer says, we liked Peter Tingle because it's like your aunt calling it something. And that's the last thing you want to call it. So then, of course, she doled down and that's what she's calling it. And she's telling someone else. And that's what they're calling it. It's a very authentic teen life. And it's not just humor, though. When Peter is in a showdown with Beck on the Tower Bridge, he says, come on, Peter Tingle, then listens to his own instincts, his own gut, his spider sense. And he's able to sense his way through the illusions. Great moment. Reaches out stops the gun at the last second there. Yeah. I, I love that moment so much. And what that represents about being able to, not only the fact that his, the, the, the Peter Tingle is open, is back online, is unlocked because he has accepted this responsibility and decided to shoulder it, but has found that confidence in himself again, even in that moment of such supreme distrust where he has to ask Edith if what he's seeing with Beck in front of him, if he's really dead. Well, what about the suits? Let's talk about the suits for a couple minutes because that's an interesting symbolic journey through Peter's arc and evolution in the film. There are multiple suits in the movie. There's there are four primary ones and actually really a fifth because the, the, the original homecoming sweatsuit appears in the fear illusion sim that Mysterio cultivates. But obviously at the beginning of the movie, Peter's in the Iron Spider suit. This is the most overt and forceful connection to Tony because Tony put it on him, literally cloaked him in it to save him in Infinity War. It's also the one that Tony offered him at the end of Homecoming that Peter rejected. It's also, of course, the most similar to Tony's own Iron Man armor. You know, Tony made the Homecoming suit for him as well, but Iron Spider replicates much of the tech, the nanotech of the Iron Man armor, it is the closest approximation to saying I am wearing Tony on my person as I seek to fill his void. Then there is, of course, the homecoming suit, the one that May packs for him, along with the note and the banana. Almost expected the poster to say use it well as though it had been left on the invisibility cloak. <laughs> this is the suit that represents Peter leveling up from homecoming, right? This is the suit that Tony made for him, gave to him his first interaction with Tony, his first interaction with the Avengers, this whole possibility, also realizing how much of that possibility with the training wheels protocol he was being deprived of. Then there's the stealth suit, AKA Night Monkey. Little Tiger on the old web shooter, Jay. Uh, fun fact, this was Tom Holland's favorite suit. 
Faux Fury gave this to him. So it connects, of course, to Fury's world in the suit up DVD feature. They note that this recalls Black Widow's suit or Hawkeye's suit. Other characters who have been associated with shield work have worn outfits like this before. I mean, you can almost see Rumlow running around in something that looks like this, maybe minus the goggles and the web shooters, right? And then there is, of course, before we get to the end sequence where Peter is swinging around in something fully intact, taking MJ around the city, there is the far from home suit the red and black, not red and blue suit that Peter constructs. And this is a massive one thematically for a few different reasons. Peter makes it on Tony's plane using Tony's printer. So it's a bridge suit for Peter. He is designing it. He is crafting it. He is choosing the functionality, the design, what's going to be a part of it, why. But Tony is there with him through his technology, through his tools. That's why Happy responds the way he does with that oh, big look smile. On, like, the look on Happy's face is just, oh my God, it's incredible. The sequence also powerfully recalls Tony's suit experiments in his labs. Jarvis might as well be here in this sequence, right? Thinking back to Iron Man, even Iron Man 2 and 3, but really back to the, the first Iron Man. You know, the way that Peter in particular sticks his arm into the hologram control and starts to work the tech, starts to experiment. It's just like being back in Tony's garage with him. And, you know, as you just noted, you can you can see it on, on Happy's face. The smile lasts until Peter confuses ACDC with Led Zeppelin. That's how we know he's not really the next <laughs> Tony Stark, folks. <laughs> Executive producer Rachel O'Connor discussed the importance of this scene on the suit up feature at saying, quote, that is really important on a thematic level and symbolizes his evolution as a character and his coming to the point where he is willing to step up. The suits that Tony has made for him rely a lot on technology, which is sort of Tony's superpower. Peter doesn't need it because he's Spider-Man. I love that line. Part of making the suit in Tony's workshop is to step up, but on his terms, not to try to be Iron Man, but to be Spider-Man. That technology line there is really fun to think about because as we've discussed for hours on end now, Tony was the futurist, right? The MCU's futurist. Yes. The futurist! <laughs> the futurist is here! Oh, he God. <laughs> he knows what's best for you. Oh, my God. I love it so much. In his own way, even though he has these actual powers and doesn't need the tech in the same way, Peter is a futurist, too. He's not purely an inventor, but he is brilliant. He has... Uh, throughout his his canon, crafted the things that allow him to bring his powers to the fore and to maximize them, to optimize them. You know, that, that line from Beck throughout the film that recurs, you know, don't ever be sorry for being the smartest person in the room. That's obviously mostly about Beck and how he views himself as not <laughs> having been appreciated for his brilliance, right? Tony taking advantage of it and and, and failing to appreciate it. But Peter actually is the smartest one in the room, just like Tony was. And seeing him forge this suit, every aspect of his character and his persona simultaneously establishing those connections to Tony that he can appreciate, that Happy can appreciate, that we can appreciate, that can uh, tug at the heartstrings, but also reinforcing he's going to do it his way in the way that feels right for him and authentic to him and his journey. It's great. Crucially, for all the In Memoriam videos and wall murals, it's not just Tony worship in this movie. The choice to make the villains people who hate Tony in a movie <laughs> largely about mourning Tony and processing loss is a absolutely a bold one. Beck yes. is yeah. a madman. 
But this is a lesson for Peter, something worth reflecting on. The responsibility you bear for the world you leave behind takes yes. many shapes and forms. Aspire to the, be the person whose death does not inspire people to become supervillains. <laughs> you know, Tony always talked about those demons, man. You know, they were real. <laughs> and there were a lot of them. I'll say this about Beck, upset about his life's work. It's kind of like the way I feel about like people who's, who are like, oh, you stole my idea. If you're mad that someone stole your idea, that means you must not have very many ideas. Tony invented time travel in his like in his kitchen, like in his study in spare time. Like he didn't he didn't need your hologram thing, dude. Like, thank you for making it and 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 doing so much hard research and work on it. But if Tony had the time to invent that, he would have invented it. <laughs> I wonder if anyone ever said to Beck, Tony Stark could have built that in a cave with a box of scraps. Yeah. <laughs> he could have. And of course, but of course, the things Tony built, that's the key, right? Tony, when he left, he didn't just leave massive boots to fill. He left a veritable arsenal in space and on Earth in the form of software, in the form of hardware, in the form of drones, in the form of AI. And all of that is up for grabs, basically. What to do with these demons? How to protect them? How to, in, how to keep them safe? Well, Tony decided that uh, his best course of action was to give it to someone who he completely trusted, maybe not in terms of their skill level and their acumen and, you know, their, uh, uh, or their level of brilliance, at least at this particular time, but their morality, their innate goodness. Um, Tony's tech, as we know from Tony itself, could always be used for evil. See Ultron, see any of the things he was doing before he became Iron Man. Beck taking control of Edith after Tony's death is another instance. You know, the thing about technology is anyone can use it. That's the danger. Stark's drones spilling out of the satellite, the shield Tony wanted to create around the world. All mm -hmm. of that is up for grabs and it's quite chilling just the fact that we now discover that tony had multiple armed satellites full of drones Crazy. just awaiting <laughs> yeah. awaiting the command to strike is so fucking scary like it's quite clear by the way there is no there's no government agency that actually knows about it too like she'll forget about it. no one can do anything about it yeah he didn't he didn't write that into his uh paperwork for the accords i think safe to say absolutely let me tell you one thing tony did not do is uh, list for <laughs> anyone all the shit that he has on earth and in space even in peter's hands the temptation right away is you know, to read his classmates' texts, to see what they're doing on their devices. This is an amount of power that could warp any person, even the brightest and the best and the most good. Let's talk about some of the, the mentor dynamics in Peter's life. Peter and Happy, Peter and Fury, Peter and Beck, who he briefly thinks could be a mentor. And of course, May. Let's actually start with May. An absolute icon. Incredible. Recall that, as we mentioned, Homecoming ends with May discovering Peter in the in the Spidey suit again, the mirror to the, oh my God, what the fuck, at the end of this. 
But there's another MCU tradition that continues here as well. It's not filling in every gap. Just as we didn't get Peter's full origin in Homecoming, you know, you piece it together with a half sentence here, a reference there. What you already know from the other Spider-Man stories that you've consumed. We don't spend any time in this movie actually seeing how May processed what she learned about who Peter is after just the initial what the fuck, right? She's just all in. She is a part of his life as Spider-Man and the fact that he is Spider-Man is a part of her life. And it's worth reflecting again on what Stephen McFeely told the LA Times' Meredith Werner in 2016. We cited this same quote when we were doing our Civil War pod because that was when May and Peter first appeared, obviously. McFeely said, quote, so what is it really like for a 15-year-old kid? Where does he live in Queens? That's partly why his aunt isn't 80 years old if she's the sister of his dead mother why does she have to be two generations ahead? You really feel the wisdom of that choice in this movie in particular. I mean, you felt it in Homecoming too, but you really feel it here in so many different ways. May is, it's not that she doesn't worry about Peter, but she's not afraid for him, prohibitively afraid for him. And also he's not afraid for her, which is really crucial. You know, we had a lot of those tender moments in Homecoming where like his conversation with Ned, he didn't want her to find out. He didn't want to add more stress to her life after everything she'd been through, but they trust each other. They're a team, they're a partnership. On the DVD featurette about May, specifically Watts cites the fact that changing that aspect of comics canon, how old May was, and specifically Peter worrying because she was so old that she would just literally die die from her nerves if she learned who he was. He cited that specifically as something that they were just like, we this this can't be a part of our story, right? And I think the way it's of that such is such a great and absolutely apparent. fantastic change. It is just weird to look back at the comics and see how fucking old Aunt May is. It's just a great change to make her <laughs> someone absolutely more contemporary, more 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 fun, more not liable to like uh, break a hip walking down the stairs. A fashion icon to boot. And it, and it opened up a different avenues for the relationship between May and Peter. It was more of a partnership. They're, they're more contemporary. As Watt said in the featurette, she's encouraging him to do the right thing, to be a productive member of his community. And she's real with him. Take the fundraiser. I actually did think you were a little stiff, she says to him after. <laughs> It's public speaking. And then she packs his suit when he, after he ignores her. You should pack your suit. I have a tingle about it. And she, of course, coining the Peter tingle. She also encourages him to just live a life, to be a kid. And May is, best of all, her own person. She yes. has her own rich and full life. Surely a stacked social calendar. She's helping people. Did you notice again that they were eating the Thai restaurant? Like... <laughs> <laughs> Still getting free rice pudding. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> She's helping people who lost their homes during the blip. When I blipped back to my apartment, the family that was living there was very confused. The wife thought I was a mistress. The grandma thought I was a ghost. And she is clearly, whatever the status of the relationship with Happy, they are clearly having a physical relationship. He's in love and she's enjoying a summer fling. Happy is ready to absolutely lock it down. And May is like, this is nice. Let's feel that blip beard. Let's go. Good for <laughs> Happy. Oh my God. <laughs> the way Happy licks his lips when uh, when May says vegan lasagna at the freezer. It's insane. Haunting. But amazing. <laughs> I feel confident 
that happy in this relationship with May is a very giving and generous lover, very eager to please. That's my read on happy. Although I think no May is probably no having a great time. <laughs> what about Peter overhearing on the phone that they're having lunch? Don't worry, I'm really taking care of your aunt, happy says with May yeah. blowing him a kiss. Says, wow. Which is, you know, good for her. Honestly, I just agree. like good for May. How about that beautiful bond between Happy and Peter in this movie? I mean, the thing about Happy and Peter in this movie, there are two things, right? There's the journey that Happy and Peter have traveled, where Happy used to just have no time for Peter and no interest in him, to the point where couldn't even be bothered to look out the fucking window to see the vulture stealing his plane and all of the Avengers' wares. But there's also the thing that they share in common, the thing that brought them into each other's lives in the first place. And that's, of course, Tony. You know, Happy is grieving too. Happy lost his best friend in Tony. You know, as Dr. Strange has previously observed, all of the people in Tony's life work for him. So we don't need to go back into that dynamic here because Happy's in a a state of pain and, and mourning. And the biggest moment for Peter and Happy exploring that shared understanding comes, of course, when... He's the one Peter calls when Peter needs help when he's in the Netherlands after the train has hit him and carried Night Monkey off to that that Netherlands jail. First, there is something just about the fact that Peter needs help. This is like the inverse of the point you were making earlier about the oddity of the fact that Peter has to listen to his teachers when he's Spider-Man. This is the other side of it. Even Spider-Man still needs help. And it's certainly like a 16-year-old kid who is dealing with all of this change in his life and processing his own mistakes needs help. This is where we get the amazing sequence about the (laughs) pay-per-viewed adult film at the German hotel. Absolutely exceptional line from Happy. He's, it's the thing is he's such a, I'm just really disappointed. I've never been more disappointed in Peter, even more disappointed than when he gave Edith to a, basically a stranger from another dimension. This was even worse. Come on, Peter. Like, oh, God. I miss- really? It's amazing. They didn't list the titles, but I could tell by the price it was an adult. I love the way Peter is fine. It's like, okay, fine. It's you. It's you. Stop. Because he's so embarrassed. Amazing stuff. Second and most crucially, though, Happy can really understand what losing Tony means. Maybe not the pressure of having to contend with inheriting the mantle or other people wanting you to inherit the mantle, but what Tony meant in Peter's life, what knowing Tony meant, absolutely. And what Tony saw in Peter, crucially also Happy can provide real, real, real insight there. One of the most heartening, moving moments in the film comes when they share this exchange on the plane when Peter reveals what happened with Edith, reveals, he says, I messed up so bad. He's almost like a, he's like a kid coming clean to his parents, right? Fessing up to a mistake, to a misjudgment. And his guilt, it's not just about the core act itself, the actual transgression. It's about mishandling Tony's trust. The fact that something that precious to him could have been treated so carelessly. And of course, that brings to the fore how much he misses him, Peter says. Everywhere I go, I see his face. And the whole world is asking who's going to be the next Iron Man. And I don't know if that's me, Happy. I'm not Iron Man. He's crying as he's saying this, kind of choking out the words. And what does Happy say? You're not Iron Man. You're never going to be Iron Man. Nobody could live up to Tony, not even Tony. Tony was my best friend. 
and he was a mess. He second-guessed everything he did. He was all over the place. The one thing, this, this is my favorite line in the movie, the one thing that he did that he didn't second-guess was picking you. I don't think Tony would have done what he did if he didn't know wow. that you were going to be here after he was gone. I mean, that is just wonderful. That is so, so, so sweet and poignant and powerful and meaningful. And there would have been a moment earlier in the film where hearing something that maybe would have only amplified the pressure Peter felt, but it's exactly what he needs to hear in this moment to believe in himself because ultimately Tony's legacy, it's it's not just this impossible standard to rise to. It's about the power of self-belief and determination. And hearing that from Happy, who understood that about Tony, it just means so much. What a beautiful moment. A little troubling that the one thing, according to Happy, that he didn't second guess, I guess, including marrying Pepper, <laughs> having a child was 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 weirdly passing trillions of dollars of deadly weaponry to a child. <laughs> I take picking you to be more bringing Peter into the fold in general and not necessarily specifically arming him with Edith, but yeah. <laughs> do we think it's a best friend? Do we think it's best friend in a Heimdall sense or like truly they were they were besties? Great question. I mean, what what a great question. I think that from Happy's perspective, truly best friends. I think if you said to Tony, who's your best friend? He probably would have said Pepper. Right? Yeah. I think Rhodey's in the in the running, certainly. Yeah. I wonder where Happy checks in on Tony's power rankings of best friends. It's a good question. <laughs> I'm betting it's not top five. How many robots are ahead of, how many AIs are ahead of Happy? <laughs> I mean, at least dummy. Oh, dear sweet dummy. I'm glad we mentioned dummy again. Fr and then Friday. Poor dumb you. So I, I bet, okay, I think it's Pepper, Morgan. Pepper and Morgan come in at number one. Let's call them a tie. Then it's dummy Jarvis. Jarvis is not around anymore, but I, I think Jarvis was honestly high, much higher than, than happy. Friday, then happy. Then Rody. Oh, God. Rody's got to be above happy. I don't know. I feel like the bond Happy and, and Tony developed over the course of the MCU was, was meaningful and sincere. No? Okay. No? I mean, may, you might be right. You might be right. Oh, God. Banner from the Avengers and Iron Man 3. Get out of here. He's, Come on. He's his therapist. You, you owe Happy an apology after no, that. He's, well, Happy, why isn't Happy Tony's <laughs> therapist? Anyway, ultimately... The relationship between Happy and Peter manifests not only in meaningful relationship and a support structure for Peter, but it operates that way for Happy as well. He can simultaneously tell Peter that he won't be Iron Man and doesn't need to try. And as evidenced by the look on his face when he sees Peter uh, working the suit controls, the suit maker controls, finds some of what he's been looking for since he lost Tony too. And he becomes something of, of, of Peter's protector and Peter's body man in the same way that he was that for Tony. When Fury says of Peter, I need to speak to him. Happy snaps right into a bodyguard mode. He'll call you. He's Peter's guy now. And then what about Nick Fury? There are some delicious parallels with Fury, even fake Fury handling Peter and Tony. 
watching Fury bring Peter in here, it's hard not to think of him recruiting Tony to the Avengers in the first place. He had doubts in both cases, but also real direction. Even though it's Talos, and Talos is acting on Fury's orders, as we learn, and even though Happy and May provide the real emotional support for Peter in terms of mentorship and parental guidance, Fury's the most direct sub-in for the thing that Tony provided in Homecoming and beyond on the hero front, which is some kind of direction and material support. Peter says, Nick Fury's going to call me? Why? And Happy says, why? Because he probably has some superhero stuff for you to do. You're a superhero. He calls superheroes. <laughs> well, I mean, if it was really that important, he'd probably call oh someone else, God. not me. Which, honestly, fair point if you're Peter. I mean, there are gods out there. Happy saying, you do not ghost Nick Fury raises some interesting parallels with, with Homecoming when he ghosted Peter for months. It's not just that Peter knows inheriting Tony's mantle will fundamentally alter his life. It's that he's still not sure he is good enough to take on the responsibilities. Fury and Peter Ned meet when Fury tranks Ned because they didn't meet at Tony's funeral. Getting tranked in the neck by Nick Fury, probably the coolest thing that, to ever happen to me anyway. Oh, it's wild that Nick Fury is a known person. Don't you think that's a little weird? That I guess Peter could have told him about it. I guess it. Peter just tells Ned everything. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I can't, ex I can't quite accept Peter and Fury not meeting at the funeral, even though they go out of their way to incorporate the line in the movie about how it would have been inappropriate to change numbers. It's like, there are like 20 people there. You yeah. don't say hello. Really? Yeah. Fury griping about his current lot in life post blip, no <laughs> intel, no team, and a high school kid is dodging my calls, which is an iconic scene, not only for the Mr. Dell bacteria update, but the general string of interruptions. Speaking to the... Again, incredible duality of Peter's life. We should have known that it wasn't really Fury because he never got into a vehicular accident of any sort over the course of the film. Right. That was the real tell. Right. He, he didn't crash anything. Yeah, exactly. The Edith handoff on the way to Venice, uh, that's, a, that's a potent exchange between Fury and Peter. Stark left these for you. Really? Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. <laughs> this is an amazing line. Stark said you wouldn't get that because it's not a Star Wars reference. A hilarious line. I call bullshit. I think Peter knows a line from Willie Shakes the Bard when, when he hears one. I don't know if he's ready to say I, that's from Henry IV, asshole, but I think he knows that it's Willie Shakes. Anyway, Peter, later on the bus when he sees the card in Edith's case, for the next Tony Stark, I trust you, PSA Edith TS. This is just... So sweet, the substance of that message, the dangers of the ensuing drone attack aside. And the conversation when Fury brings Peter to the base after giving him Edith accounts for that where are the other Avengers factor that we mentioned earlier. You know, Sir, come on, there's got to be someone else you can use. What about Thor? Off-world. Um, Doctor Strange, Hell says, unavailable. Okay, Captain Marvel, don't invoke her name. Added resonance knowing that that's Talos actually saying that given the Captain Marvel Talos history there. The line in the stinger when Talos calls Fury and says, everyone kept asking where the Avengers are, and I don't know what to say to that. Absolutely exceptional. I love that so much. Fury lectures Peter in Prague about how he misused Edith on the bus. It's clear to me that you were not ready for this. And even after the Prague fight, even after Peter as Night Monkey works with Beck, Fury's still hard on him because it was so hard to get him there in the first place. Peter didn't want to go, if you will. 
You gotta decide (laughs) whether you're going to step up or not. Fake Fury says here, Stark chose you. He made you an Avenger. I need that. The world needs that. Maybe Stark was wrong. Was he? The choice is yours. Intense guilt trip here from Talos. How about Beck, the mentor that Peter thinks he's winning? Well, more about uh, Mysterio's actual agenda in in a minute. But in terms of the Beck-Peter mentor-mentee relationship, he first shows up when Peter, who just wants to enjoy some peace, has to all of a sudden fight a water elemental in Venice. Peter asks him to let him help. He, of course, feels the responsibility of the great power that he has. He has to help when he sees danger. But Beck showing up is also a way out for him a way that he can actually just be a kid and leave these things to someone else. The idea of Beck being from another Earth fires Peter's imagination. I'm sorry, you're saying there's a multiverse? Because I thought that was just theoretical. I mean, that completely changes how we understand the initial singularity. But also feels like a bit of a loophole. He's not shirking Earth 616 responsibility. He's letting someone who has faced this level of threat before and all alone take the lead. Which, if this had been legit, would have been a responsible move. But And, of course, Beck encourages Peter's fascination, his curiosity, and this feeling that he is in safe and secure hands. Don't ever apologize for being the smartest one in the room, he says, pumping Peter up. And he also sides with Peter against Fury, saying Fury kidnapped him. This feigned empathy really works on Peter. And it makes Peter feel okay for wanting to sit this fight out. In Prague, he says, I didn't think I was going to have to save the world this summer. I know that makes me sound like such a jerk. I just had this plan with this girl that I really like, and now it's all ruined. And Beck replies, you're not a jerk for wanting a normal life, kid. It's a hard path. You see things, you do things, you make choices, people look up to you, and even if you win a battle, sometimes they die. And Peter says to Beck in Prague, it's really nice to have someone to talk to about superhero stuff, do you know? And of course, to do that stuff with, the flow they have in Prague, orchestrated, of course, by Beck, makes Peter feel like he's on a team again. He's with Mr. Stark again. Someone like that. Peter is is craving in Beck that exact thing, what he lost in Tony, and also in the process of finding that a way to, to put some of that weight on someone else. If he hands Edith to someone who can bear that weight, then he's actually performing a service, not avoiding that responsibility. He's positioning the world to be in capable hands. And he's handing Edith to someone he just saw in Prague, willing to sacrifice his own life. What more forceful connection could there be to Tony who just did exactly that? Mr. Stark left me a message with those glasses. For the next Tony Stark, I trust you. He's saying this to Beck in the fake bar scene. He knew every mistake I ever made, Peter says. So he must have known I was not ready for something like this. And this is actually it's really sad that Peter, part of this is wisdom and part of this is a lack of, of, of readiness and belief. The world needs the next Iron Man. And it's not going to be me, he says. I'm a 16-year-old kid from Queens. It needs to be an adult. That kind of line, highlighting those points, that's the kind of thing that other people, including Tony, used to say to Peter back in Homecoming. And now he's the one saying it to them. Even Fury says, there's a void in this world for someone like you, meaning Beck. But 
Beck, part of the appeal is that he seems to get it. He seems to get all aspects of this, not just the superhero work, but the life part of it, to understand why Peter would want to enjoy his youth. Over the lemonades after the prog fight, when Peter opens up, he says, Fury was right. Tony did a lot for me, so I owe it to him, to everybody. And Beck's reply is, do you? Now, of course, this is all part of the plot, deliberately intention to lead Peter into his snare. But Peter is a captive audience for this kind of line of thinking and inquiry. Yeah, I mean, Mr. Stark gave me the chance to be more. He wanted me to be better than him. And Fury just wants me to live up to that. What do you want, Peter? Well, think about moments where we've heard other characters ask our heroes, Sam and Cap, in Winter Soldier, one example, what makes you happy? It's not something that's easy for people like Peter or Cap or Tony to answer. But Peter, when pressed, does have an answer. And it's been a long time since someone asked Peter anything like that. And Beck knows that and is working to exploit it. I want to go back on my trip, he says, with my friends and go to the top of the Eiffel Tower with the girl who I really like and tell her how I feel and give her a kiss. But he says he can't do it. Why not? Because I have too much of a responsibility. There it is. And he says this at a moment when he has knocked Edith the most powerful tool there is onto the fucking floor. One of Beck's minions has to walk over and hand the glasses to Peter because he didn't even realize where they were. I mean, what more apt encapsulation could there be for him and for us that he should hand these over in that moment or so he thinks, right? And he is so eager for all of that, for someone else to help him, for permission to go live his life that it fuels the mistake that he makes that ultimately turns in to his regret because Mysterio is not just working Peter, he is positioned to be a villain who worms his way in to the vulnerabilities and anxieties of modern day life. You're going to talk about his comics history in the Sanctum, but just for a minute before that, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the nature of his impact on the modern world. First, and Quite interestingly, Mysterio joins the known comics villains who the MCU briefly tried to sell as good guys, list with Mordo, Yon-Rog. Comics fans, of course, knew once uh, the name Quentin Beck was uttered, and of course from the, from the costume, that this is a bad guy. And then it's all about, does the Swiss work for you? Is it pulled off well? I think here it is. I think in yeah, a much more successful same. way than it was with, with Jan Rog. Um, <laughs> it, it just, it, it's very satisfying. And not only because, I mean, for various reasons, but I think, I think most impactfully because what Mysterio is selling is so clearly a thing that Peter needs. It works in that way. He, he is like a very, very adept con man he understands what Peter is hungry for, what Peter is looking for, and he provides that thing without seeming to do it. And that's why the, the, the character works so well and why the, the reveal is so delicious. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great moment when the reveal does come and he's just like, get this fucking costume, costume off of me. me. And then he begins yeah. toasting his whole gang to the man who brought us all together, our former boss, Tony Stark, the Jester King, literally wrapped in wealth and technology that he was unfit to wield. He is a villain who, uh, in the way he weaponizes information 
and truth is made for the modern world. His plan hinges on on the outsized role superheroes have already taken on in society. People are not only ready to believe, not only primed to believe, they need to believe it. As he says to Guterman, the story you created of a soldier from another Earth named Quentin fighting space monsters in Europe is totally ridiculous and apparently exactly the kind of thing that people will believe right now. I mean, everybody bought it. And he says to the group, these days you can be the smartest guy in the room and no one cares unless you're flying around with a cape or shooting lasers from your hands. No one will even listen. Mysterio will be the greatest hero on Earth. Then everyone will listen, not to a boozy man child, not to a hormonal teenager, to me and my very wealthy crew to us, to Mysterio, to Peter Parker, poor kid. This crew, by the way, comes under the threat of his drone fire the second he learns about the missing drone. Which is necessary because you need to understand that this is an absolutely bad guy who does have a point, but is bad. And in the Berlin Sim, <laughs> I created Mysterio to give the world someone to believe in. Man, that whole sequence is so good. You can you can feel the the Spider Verse impact on the special effects in in the the Berlin Sim yeah, sequence for it's sure. Really cool. Love that. As he says to Peter. When Peter asks how he could do all this, you'll see, Peter, people need to believe. Nowadays, they'll believe anything. I remember thinking that felt very pointed at the time when I was in the theater. It's it's certainly not an accident that J. Jonah Jameson and the newfangled version of the Daily Bugle re-enter the story in this movie with a villain who is weaponizing the idea of trust and truth, information, safety, surveillance can you trust your own mind? Can you trust what you see? This, you know, Infowars type figure, conspiracy theories, all of that is connected in the way the movie assesses the modern landscape. We, this is not a, a Captain America movie and it's a, a, a Tony Peter movie, not a Peter Cat movie, but it, it does raise a lot of comps and similarities with stuff that we talked about a lot in our Winter Soldier pod those modern day concerns, you know, drones, obviously one example. You mentioned that line earlier when Beck says, London is a beautiful city and it will suffer, but they can rebuild. I mean, I'm going to be the next Iron Man. I need to save the world from an Avengers level threat. The destruction for him is necessary. Part of the point. Surveillance, the way that the tools and power at play in the world can uh, peel away the layers of privacy and any expectation of privacy that the characters in the movie would have. Again, as as mentioned, fake news. Who and what can you trust? You know, Mysterio, when the illusion begins to fail in London, you think, okay, this is when it's all coming apart for him. But he tells William to kill it and, and William's like, well, how are you going to, what are you going to do here? And he says, they'll see what I want them to see. His entire approach hinges on not only the belief, but the certainty that he can not only craft an illusion, but capture everybody in it because people are either primed for that or in some cases need and want that. That's his worldview, right? You're a good person, Peter, he says. Such a weakness. And that's when he is enacting his final ruse attempt before Peter, the Peter Tingle kicks in and he catches the gun. But he actually means that idea. That's part of what makes his, his, his form of villainy so perverse, actually. The idea that goodness and wanting to help people is actually something to try to root out. And that the thing people need is to be brought under the hypnotic spell 
of a con man. Speaking of Mysterio, speaking of that con man, it's time for today's sanctum. These days, you can be the smartest guy in the room, the most qualified, and no one cares. Unless you're flying around with a cape or shooting lasers from your hands or sharing history lessons, no one will even listen. So please gather the masters of the mystic arts, head to the sanctum sanctorum of your choosing, teach us everything we need to know about Mysterio's comics history. When I first learned that Quentin Beck, a.k.a. Mysterio, would be the big bad of Spider-Man Far From Home, I thought it was a strange choice, to be honest. Spidey has arguably the most varied and vibrant rogues gallery in Marvel Comics. Why not choose the Green Goblin, the Hobgoblin, the Sandman, Black Cat, the Lizard, or any of the many, many other baddies, like the Kingpin, who have more traditional skills and power sets and abilities that more naturally lend themselves to big comic book fights. But of course, it all worked out. Far From Home wonderfully captures the weird confluence of self-loathing ego and special effects tradecraft that makes Mysterio one of the weirdest and off-center characters in Marvel's toy chest, as I discussed in our Captain America Civil War pod. The idea of Civil War being a bright and bold exploration of the concept of the monopoly on violence that underpins the modern nation state. In comic book stories and movies, superheroes, because of their innate and unquestionable moral goodness, are the only legitimate wielders of violence. And that's because all the fictional versions of state and private institutions that that uh, we think of as creating modern life in reality in this fictional world have been utterly corrupted. In Marvel Comics, the U.S. government is a haven for war criminals and war profiteers who engaged in a decades-long project of brainwashing and experimentation to create controllable super people who then would use as weapons. The Sentinels, artificially intelligent mutant hunting robots, are a longtime government project. S.H.I.E.L.D., the world's elite intelligence and espionage organization, was revealed in Winter Soldier, the movie, to be a nest of Nazi terrorists plotting the downfall of the world system. In the comics, S.H.I.E.L.D. was, while fighting threats like HYDRA and AIM, is itself a constant threat to world security due to any number of ongoing secret plots going on inside the organization <laughs> and the constant danger that key personnel are actually rogue life model decoys and the organization's penchant for invading sovereign nations without sanction from the president, from Congress or the UN, and the fact that its helicarriers are falling from the sky all the time <laughs> on cities, on towns, everywhere. In Marvel Comics, organized crime is endemic, touching every facet of the economy. Damage control, for instance, as we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. The construction and salvage company, which owns the contract for cleaning up after superhero-related events, was co-owned by Tony Stark and Wilson Fisk. They had a very interesting, like, stock-sharing agreement, actually. Better known as the kingpin of crime. Unbelievable. J. Jonah Jameson's Daily Bugle has broken some important stories, yes. But it's most famous... Most notable is the editor's personal soapbox with which to rail against Spider-Man. And on a few notable occasions, Jameson, casting aside any pretense of journalistic integrity, has financially supported Spider-Man's enemies. He's done that numerous times. 
I didn't go to uh, journalism school, but I'm pretty sure you can't do that. Yeah, we need to we need to get Jade Jonah Jameson back in a com law class immediately. Immediately. Send this guy to Medill. Now, come to Newhouse. Come on. Anywhere. Come on. Anywhere will tell him. He'll be like, so uh, can I uh, can I financially <laughs> support supervillains so that they will attack Spider-Man and then I can <laughs> then write about it? No. Now, of course, Peter is also taking pictures of himself and selling them. But like, we'll let that one slide <laughs> compared to the editor in chief of a major newspaper who later becomes like a multimedia impresario supporting supervillains so that they can attack Spider-Man. You can't do that. Come on, Jonah. Viewed through this lens, the corruption of institutions, Mysterio comes into focus as more than just a disgruntled stuntman and special effects expert. He's a strikingly modern critique of the way mass media can be used for propaganda purposes and the danger of believing what you see. Mysterio, later revealed to be Quentin Beck, made his debut in 1964 as Amazing Spider-Man number 13. The cover, drawn by comics legend and Spider-Man co-creator Steve Ditko, also the artist for the issue itself, is an iconic example of Steve's detail-heavy style. Spidey on the left is firing his web shooters two-handed at a strange caped figure on the right, Mysterio. The villain's costume is made of this uh, green quilted material with lots of cross hatching and, and beautiful detail. He wears this long purple cape and a fishbowl helmet, and he seems to be appearing out of a swirl of smoke. And written on the cover are the words, we've done it. We've created the greatest villain of all for old Spidey Mysterio. Who or what is he? As the story opens, New York is a buzz with the news that Spider-Man has broken bad. He is the prime suspect in a high-profile cash robbery. It's a great, the opening page is like him running away from a safe. These two guys in suits confused about what's happened. One of them's holding his head like he just got bopped on the head and Spider-Man is running away with a bag, literally a sack with a dollar symbol on it. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, uh Spider-Man was last seen crawling up a building and swinging away from the scene of the crime. Shocked citizens gather around newsstands reading the latest Daily Bugle. Why would he do it? My children always admired him. This will be a shock to them. It's a great shock to all of us. Jameson, of course, is ebullient. Find all the old editorials I wrote accusing Spider-Man of being a menace. I want to reprint them now so people can see how right I was, he says to his secretary. Peter Parker initially wonders if he's suffering from like a personality disorder. Like, is this a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation? He goes to visit a psychiatrist, but then changes his mind inside the office. Later, Mysterio appears in Jameson's office at the invitation of J. Jonah Jameson. He hands the editor a note for Spider-Man inviting the web slinger to a meeting on top of the Brooklyn Bridge. Spidey attempts to apprehend Mysterio at the meeting, but the wall crawler finds himself lost in this impenetrable cloud of smoke. And he's being punched from all sides through the smoke, but he can't find the, his attacker. So to get away from all this, Spidey jumps off the bridge into the East River. Though defeated, Peter is relieved to learn that he isn't suffering from some kind of mental break. Mysterio, meanwhile, the hero that beat Spider-Man, is the toast of the town. He makes an appearance at the Daily Bugle again. The guest of uh, a, a glowing J. Jonah Jameson, which gives <laughs> Peter Parker, intrepid freelancer, an opportunity. When Jameson mm -hmm. introduces Mysterio to Parker, 
saying, despite his youth, he's the best photographer I've got. He's the best, and yet you won't hire him full-time? Okay. Uh, Peter pins a tracker of his own design, a little spider tracker, onto Mysterio's cape. And in the ensuing confrontation, Mysterio helpfully monologues his entire origin story. He was, it turns out, a stuntman and a special effects professional working in film and television. Unhappy with his career path, he hit upon the idea of using costumes, props, and gadgets to impersonate Spider-Man. Whatever Spider-Man does naturally, I'll find a way to do artificially, he says to himself. He makes a gun that shoots nylon cord, which from a distance look like spider webs. He creates suction cup gloves for wall climbing and spring-loaded boots so that he can do Spider-Man-like leaps. He also has a chemical spray that dissolves Spider-Man's webbing, should he come into conflict with Spider-Man, and smoke modules in his boots, and... His suit contains a sonar device that allows him to navigate in this very thick smoke. Mysterio's plan was working flawlessly right up to the point when he decided to monologue again his entire backstory. Spider-Man, absolutely no one's dummy, taped the entire conversation. He then proceeds to uh, beat up Mysterio. Uh, the fight carries through a film set, ironically, with all the crew and, and, and camera people running every which way. Spider then delivers Mysterio and the tape to the cops and the photos of the fight to Jameson. Win, win, win. Big win for our guy, Spider-Man definitionally telling on yourself. You had it sewn up, Mysterio. You didn't you need to doing? do this. Mysterio would later become a charter member of the Sinister Six, who we talked about in our Spider-Man Homecoming pod. The supervillain team debuted in 1964's Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1. The Six's unbelievably stupid plan, as we discussed again in our Homecoming pod, was to attack him one at a time, thus negating the strengths of joining together as a team. And that's not all. This card I'm holding, Electro tells Spider-Man at the beginning of this ordeal, tells you where to go for the next step of your trail to rescue Betty Brant, but you'll have to defeat me to get it. So in other words, <laughs> oh let me get this straight. You're incentivizing Spider-Man to beat you because if he beats you, he then gets the location of the next person he has to fight and so on and so forth and so on. It's just everybody fight him at once. What do we, why are you giving him clues to the next person? This is a terrible idea. <laughs> so silly. Mysterio's ploy is to use uh, robot dupes of the X-Men to trick Spider-Man into thinking Professor X's mutant team is attacking him. Why the X-Men? Why that particular illusion? Why not do something else? Does this seem like an unnecessary investment in time? And who cares if it's the X-Men? If this scheme makes little sense as a method for defeating Spider-Man, it makes a lot of sense as cross-promotion for the X-Men standalone title, which had debuted the previous year. Spider-Man... And by the way, sold very, very poorly uh, until the 70s. Spider-Man takes down the robots, then finds Mysterio in his hidden control room and whoops his ass once again, gets the card to the next person and defeats the entire Sinister Six one at a time. One of the more interesting Mysterio stories comes from 1999's Web Spinners number one. Now, as we talked about before this period of Marvel's history, late 90s to the early 2000s was a particularly creative time. The company was just emerging from the ashes of bankruptcy in 96, 97, and was just really eager to throw a bunch of ideas at the wall to see what would stick. Web Spinners was one that did not stick. It lasted only 18 issues. But it was a really cool idea, which was 
to allow a varied collection of comics creators loose in the Spider-Man universe in an anthology setting. Web Spinners Number 1, written by J.M. DeMattis, with art by Michael Zuli and colors by Christy Skeel, finds Quentin Beck at a low point in his life. The setup is basically Taxi Driver, okay? Beck is down and out. He's jobless. He's depressed. He is staying at this Lower East Side hole-in-the-wall hotel, calling studio after studio, trying to get a special effects gig. He is striking out time and time again because, of course— he has a criminal record for being the supervillain Mysterio. <laughs> so it's just tough. He decides to go for a walk and he ends up at his old apartment, the apartment where he grew up, and he begins reminiscing. I saw myself, he thinks, nine years old, working with that old half-busted camera my Uncle Vinny gave me, spending hours, sometimes days, on little stop-action monster movies that lasted a couple of minutes each. I don't think I was ever happier than I was then. Beck's father, however, didn't understand or support his son's passions, and he smashed young Quentin's camera equipment, breaking the boy's heart. Finally, lost in a drift, Beck finds strength in his desire for revenge against Spider-Man, who has beaten him time and time and time and time again. Using his Mysterio gear, he fakes a video showing Spider-Man causing a car accident, which takes J. Jonah Jameson's life. Oh, Peter, says Aunt May while watching the news report of Jameson's demise. Mr. Jameson was like a father to you and to meet his end in such a grisly way at the hands of that awful Spider-Man. Again, Peter, just as in Amazing 13, then begins to wonder, like, did he black out and murder J. Jonah Jameson? Like, did this actually happen? Jameson, meanwhile, you'd think like after all these years, he'd be like, seems like Mysterio is afoot. Anyway, <laughs> Jameson, meanwhile... <laughs> awakes to find himself bathed in golden light with a voice telling him that he is dead and he must face his transition to the next life. Jameson then goes hilariously swimming up through this golden light only to find himself emerged onto a rock in the middle of a lake of fire filled with demons. This is, of course, an illusion created by Quentin Beck using his brilliant special effects skills. Spider-Man unravels the scheme, of course, and Mysterio once again goes down in defeat, sent off once again to jail. Mysterio, of all Spidey's rogues, is, I think, the least equipped to handle this endless string of defeats. He's not a genius like Dr. Octopus, nor like the Sandman does he have powers, nor like Norman Osborn does he have unlimited wealth and resources. He's just a guy, a talented guy, whose lengthy criminal record keeps him from being able to work in the field in which his talents lie. At one point in Web Spinners number one, Peter and Quentin end up a few seats apart at a showing of a restored cut of King Kong, the inspiration of many of young Quentin's stop-motion experiments. That was great, wasn't it? Peter says as the lights come up. Beyond great, that Willis O'Brien, he was an absolute genius, Beck says. Yeah, I remember my uncle had this issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland, and it showed you how it was all done. The stop-action animation, I couldn't believe it. Your uncle was into this stuff? He didn't make fun of you for liking it? No, why would he make fun of me? It's such a sad conversation. No conversation, of course, about Spider-Man as villains. We'd be complete without discussing Steve Ditko, who, along with Jack Kirby, created the look and feel and dynamism of early Marvel comics. Steve Ditko is very noticeably name-checked at the end of Far From Home, along with his Spider-Man co-creator, Stan Lee. Jack Kirby's figures were 
primarily this blocky, muscular kind of figure with these like very rounded heads, almost square sometimes, but just uh, great action, uh, but very muscular and stout. Steve Ditko had a more graceful, kind of like elegant, detail-heavy style. His figures were like almost unnaturally thin, but with wonderfully small details. Uh, some of the characters created or co-created by Ditko include Spider-Man, ever heard of him? Doctor Strange, ever heard of him? Dormammu, ever heard of him? The Green Goblin, Dr. Octopus. Aunt May, the Ancient One, Mary Jane, the Lizard, many, 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 many more. Again, his style is is defined by this intricate line work and an incredible eye for costumes and the way costumes kind of moved and billowed on the bodies of the people wearing them. Think of the web detailing on Spider-Man's costume across the front and across the boots or the quilting on Mysterio's costume, which is like almost comically unnecessary, but so wonderful in the way that makes the costume pop. Where Kirby often went with minimalist costume designs, think the Fantastic Four, simply like blue pajamas, you know, or the X-Men, which is kind of like yellow and black pajamas. Ditko really seemed to meditate over each tiny pencil mark in Strange's billowing cape or the shading on a character's face. But his contributions were not limited to the art. In Marvel The Untold Story, Sean Howe recounts an anecdote Recorded by the journalist Nat Friedland from a 1966 profile of Stanley, quote, I don't plot Spider-Man anymore, Lee said. Steve Ditko, the artist, he's been doing these stories. I guess I'll leave him alone until the sales start to slip. Since Spidey got so popular, Ditko thinks he's the genius of the world. We were arguing so much over the plot lines. I told him to start making up his own stories. He won't let anyone else ink his drawings either. He just drops off the finished pages with notes in the margins and I fill in the dialogue. I never know what he'll come up with next, but it's interesting to work that way. Ditko would leave the company after falling out with Lee in 1966, and he never fully profited from his numerous creations, but he didn't talk about it much. Ditko stopped giving interviews in 1968, though he did engage with fans quite often through uh, through the post office, through the mail. He died in 2018 at the age of 90. Mal, you do not ghost Nick Fury. You do not ghost the Nuggets. So let's collect six of our favorite insights and observations from this film. Like so many Infinity Stones, Lightning Red Style, you go first. J. Jonah Jameson. Boo! (laughs) The leak of Peter's identity is obviously the primary revelation in the Far From Home mid-credits stinger, but it's not actually the part of that stinger that left fans buzzing the most. That would be J.K. Simmons appearing as the Daily Bugle's J. Jonah Jameson, just as he had in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. And this got... Fans speculating about all sorts of things. The MCU's continued examination of the multiverse, particularly coming as this did, of course, at the end of a movie in which the main character talks about the stakes of hinting at the multiverse. But in an interview with Karen Hahn for Polygon, John Watts explained that this was more a matter of course for the filmmakers, this casting. Quote, We always knew we wanted Spider-Man's identity to be revealed, and it felt like it had to be on some sort of news outlet, Watts told Hahn. 
And then you start talking about, well, what is the main news outlet in Spider-Man's world? And it's always been the Daily Bugle. And when you start talking about the Daily Bugle, you start talking about J. Jonah Jameson. Okay, so if it's not a multiverse play here, could another actor have portrayed Jameson to avoid the slew of theories that this spawned? Not according to Watts. Quote, we thought if we're going to have J. Jonah Jameson, it had to be J.K. Simmons. There was never any discussion about him being anyone else because it just wouldn't have felt right. In an interview with Screen Rant's Anna Dumarag, Feige confirmed that it's not a Jameson from another dimension and not a Jameson from another Earth. Quote, it can be the same actor with that somewhat similar voice inflection, but with a totally different persona. That had never been done before. We really liked the idea that it's a new Jameson. He's not from another dimension or multiverse or something like that. It's a new Jameson in this world played by the same actor. Amazing stuff. As part of the Jameson revival, Sony even launched a fake Daily Bugle website to help promote the film. Number two, the elementals. The earth, air, water. And fire elementals in the movie aren't just Mysterio's <laughs> illusions. They're loosely based on four characters from Spider-Man's rogues gallery, Sandman, Cyclone, Hydra-Man, and Molten Man. Hydra-Man's comics canon in particular gets a shout out as following the Venice showdown flash says, BuzzFeed says there's a sailor named Morris Bench who is exposed to an experimental underwater generator and got Hydra powers. This is exactly the comic's origin from Morris Bench's Hydra-Man, who debuted in 1981's Amazing Spider-Man number 212 in the far, far, far from home bonus DVD featurette. Executive producer Eric Hauserman Carrigal shares a bit more about Hydra-Man's connection. Quote, he's got this really interesting power set. Spider-Man can't just punch him. Spider-Man can't just web him up. He's made of water. Another bonus feature on the DVD called Stealthy Easter Eggs notes that Nick Fury's license plate, ASM 28965, is a nod to Molten Man's comics debut in The Amazing Spider-Man number 28 from 1965. You should assume that almost every license plate in the MCU's Spider-Man films nods to a prior comic. That same featurette confirms that the film's opening exchange between Hill and Fury, what are we fighting the weather now? Locals say the Cyclone had a face is a nod to Cyclone's Amazing Spider-Man number 143 appearance with a clip of Watt saying Cyclone fans will be so happy. Cyclone is their favorite villain while filming that scene. That same opening scene in Mexico features the creature who's a nod to William Baker's Sandman. In the comics, there is actually a group of villains called the Elementals who can control their respective elements and who battle Captain Marvel. Number three, Captain America presumed dead. <laughs> The absolutely wonderful Midtown School of Science and Technology and Memoriam video that we talked about earlier for the Avengers who perished fighting Thanos includes the requisite shots of Tony, of course, twice, in fact, a shot of Natasha and a shot of Vision. There is no Gamora, which, you know, makes sense because she hadn't made it down to Earth or aligned with the Avengers before her original timeline death on, on Vormir. But, folks, there's a shock in the tribute. Captain America appears among the dead. Not in the zombie cap way that we're going to get in What If. Just a picture of Chris yes. Evans as Captain America. Now. Fuck to death. <laughs> oh, my God. Peggy rode him all the way into the grave. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. 
Holy shit. Fair to say it's basically impossible that the MCU killed off Cap in a casual far from home snapshot in a montage that includes a picture of candles with a Getty image word mark over it. What is this, X-Men 3? (laughs) The moment. We must assume, though, reflects the fact that amid Cap's jump back to his secret life of dancing and fucking with Peggy... The world thought that he was dead. And this is honestly pretty sad to reflect on for a minute. But it's all the more reason to get hyped for Sam to pick up that shield in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Number four, Earth 833. While the Mm. MCU continuity has always had its own name, Earth 199999, the primary continuity in Marvel Comics is Earth 616. As we noted in prior Easter egg observations, MCU films have hinted at the 616 history before. From the 616 label on Scott's storage locker in Avengers Endgame to the 616 universe scribble on the chalkboard behind Selvig in Thor The Dark World. Even with those prior winks, hearing Beck say aloud, there are multiple realities, Peter. This is Earth Dimension 616. I'm from Earth 833. Thrilled fans. Absolutely. Me too. I was like, even though I knew it was Mysterio, it was like, wow, that's cool to hear 616. The fact that Beck's entire multiverse tale was a fabrication that Guterman spun to sway the masses. Good job, Guterman. Classic Guterman. I thought it was ridiculous, Guterman, but guess what? People love it. (laughs) Earth 833 is in fact another Marvel dimension, and it's home to William Braddock, also known as Captain Britain Corps member Spider-UK. Number five, no Stan. We always include a nugget in the six about Stan Lee's cameo, but following Lee's 2018 death and following 22 MCU films and 22 Stan Lee cameos, Far From Home became the first MCU film in which Stan Lee does not appear. Since Lee had appeared in Captain Marvel and Endgame after his death, and since he is, you know, so associated with Spider-Man, some fans assume that he would appear posthumously here as well. But as John Watts told Cinema Blend's Kevin McCarthy, it was never a consideration. Quote, I think everyone sort of knew that he was sick and he had just filmed the cameo for Endgame. I think they shot that earlier too. The quote continues... It felt right for the last thing to be an endgame. So we never really talked about it, honestly. Now, of course, if we open up beyond the MCU to Marvel stories of the time, then Spider-Man Homecoming was not actually Lee's final cameo in a Spider-Man movie. In the absolutely outstanding 2018 Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Lee shares a really, really beautiful animated moment with Miles Morales, selling Miles his first Spidey suit in a costume shop and sharing this exchange, which ends up paying off as a laugh because you cut to the sign about no refunds, but is actually just a really, really tender, sweet moment. I'm going to miss him. They're talking about Peter Parker in this scene. Yeah, Miles says, we were friends, you know, Stan says. And then Miles asks of the costume, can I return it if it doesn't fit? And Stan says, it always fits eventually. (laughs) I love that so much. That's such a good one. Beautiful. Number six, more Easter eggs. Even beyond the ones we've already discussed today, Far From Home is as jam-packed with Easter eggs as the Hotel de Matias is with water. There are so many, in fact, that it bears paying particular attention to the ones highlighted in the DVD bonus feature, Stealthy Easter Eggs. A few 
relating to Cyclone, Hydro-Man, and Multiman, and the similarities between Peter's suit construction sequence and Tony's from Iron Man and J. Jonas Jameson's return have already come up today. Here are a few others. With Edith as our narrating guide in the featurette, Peter's suitcase bears the monogram BFP, a small nod to Uncle Ben. Beck and Guterman appear behind Peter in Venice with Beck at the ATM behind Peter as he looks out at his classmates and Guterman walking behind Peter and MJ as MJ shares her discovery of the Italian word bull. Many of the building and street signs that the students pass during their travels are references to Spider-Man comic scribes, the ones cited here. Hotel Di Matias for J.M. Di Mattis. Calle del Slotto for Dan Slot. One of the greats. Campo di Sterno for Roger Stern, one of the greats. Parochio di Convaio for Jerry Conway, one of the greats. And BM Bendicio di Michelino for Brian Michael Bendis and David Michelini. Brian Michael Bendis, of course, creator of Ultimate Spider-Man. There's some key signage on display as Peter swings through New York, too. The subway-esque map is also a parallel for the MCU, exiting the Infinity Saga and entering Phase 4, as it says... We're so excited to show you what comes next over a one, two, and three that point toward a question mark. Dun, dun, dun! What a perfectly fitting end note for the six. I love it. It really is great. Mal, Edith stands for even dead I'm the hero, but does that mean I'm the winner? Because this season we're debating the winner of every episode of Binge Mode Marvel. Whosoever holds this hammer, if they be where they shall possess the power of Bin. You know the rules by now. Each of us will have 60 seconds to make our case for who the winner is of this film, followed by a 30-second rebuttal section. Are you ready, Ruben? Ready. Flip that coin. Flip that coin. Heads. It's tails. Wow, the tails run. Look at that. Tails (laughs) run. It's all evened out. Ready? (laughs) Yes. Three, two, one. I'm picking Quentin Beck Mysterio as the winner of this movie. Not only because he managed to dupe Peter Parker out of uh, trillions of dollars worth of of defense weaponry and uh, intelligence, technology, infrastructure, but crucially because he didn't actually lose. Yes, the plan to destroy London and thus elevate himself to a hero didn't come off the way he wanted, but did he not get the last laugh? His video showing Spider-Man as the culprit for the London attack is out there. What's also out there? Peter Parker's name as the identity of Spider-Man. Quentin Beck literally gets the last word. And the last laugh. In the eyes of everyone, it is Peter Parker that is the criminal. Can we really say that Quentin Beck lost when in fact he won? We can say it and I'm prepared to. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm picking Peter Parker Spider-Man. Ever heard of him? (laughs) Ready? One, two, three, go. Peter is under an immense amount of pressure that is not normal and is not fair. And yet, time and again, while working to balance the necessity of the moment with the desire of his heart, he finds a way to answer the call, to protect his friends 
For a long time, he holds onto that black Dahlia necklace and keeps it intact before it breaks. Gets a kiss on the bridge. Somehow no cameras are around at that point with his mask off. So good for Peter. Really well done. Glad the tower bridge sequence worked out for him. Bonds with Happy, has the trust of May, concocts his own suit, and really processes his relationship with Tony, the grief that he's carrying, and that that is an okay and normal thing, and what it means to be a teenager, to be a friend, a family member, and a hero. Three, two, one. In this movie, Peter almost murders a classmate with a drone strike. He it happens. very happily reads mm-hmm. all of his classmates' text messages Not as true. they are writing them. This kid will be hacking Slander. people's emails, their texts, their cell phones Not true. shortly. Lies, he, deception. He did it. He did it in front of our eyes. He didn't Said take it was off wrong. Edith. In fact, Said it was he, wrong. He, yes, and yet he continued to do it. So the <laughs> fact that he tough. knew that it was wrong and that he continued to do it should tell us something about the winner of this movie, a person who at least never pretended that what he was doing was not grimy. Wow. Just foul <laughs> tactic for you. A Mysterio-esque illusion that you just attempted to, to craft for the <laughs> listeners. Uh, Steve, I'm ready. Please count me in. One. Two, three. Mysterio is dead. Okay. I know you enjoy trying to carry on the legacy. Is he? We'll see. But hey, as we like to say, that might be another movie. (laughs) You're using the Zemo logic for Mysterio. And I respect the thought. However, here's the difference. Crucial. Zemo wanted what he got wanted to sow the seeds of dissent. That is not what Mysterio wanted. This was not even plan B for him. This was plan Z for him. He wanted love and adoration and respect, and he had to settle for this feeble fucking deep fake that will be retconned five seconds into the next movie. Pathetic. Plan Z, that's 26 more plans than Peter has ever had in either of his movies. (laughs) He has a step plan in this one <laughs> okay 20 20 more oh, plans God. i love it you know i think we know the truth may may really won the movie i mean she is well, just yeah that's that's a different she's been winning crushing it in my eyes for many many years for a long long time good happy movie she's been a too. part of my life for a long time i know she's one of your your yeah, truest original movie. loves great happy movie a lot, a lot of, absolutely a lot of contenders here all right binge heads Mjolnir now goes to you and you decide who is the worthy winner of this episode of Binge Mode Marvel. Is it Quentin Beck Mysterio killed by his own drones without even getting a wrinkle-free cape? (laughs) Is it Peter Parker who Jason can now say one more disparaging thing about? (laughs) Well, binge heads, you're an FOS now. Friend of Steve Allman. Isaac Lee and Zach Graham our indispensable producers and researcher. Remember, if you're looking for past seasons of Binge Mode, whether Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, Star Wars Weekly, they're available for you to listen to in full for free exclusively on Spotify. We hope you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the Quinjet. Explore. Oh, wait, no. There's no more story to explore. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, that's it. Oh, no. For our finale, 
of Binge Mode Marvel. Until then, you get that Peter Tingle back online. Hey, what's up, Mike? This is Dr. Marine. Uh, I uh, want to talk about uh, uh, just New York level sports today after the blip, Mike. Here's my issue. I got half my team uh, is five years older, and then another half of the team is is f- the age they were five years ago. How how are we supposed to do this under the cap? The team can't figure out the salary cap. I think you should be able to pay guys at the level they were when they blipped out, and then they shouldn't count against the cap with the guys that came in that the team had to sign because they didn't exist yet. I, I just think this whole situation is out of whack, Mike. The first thing they got to do is they got to increase the roster size to have the guys that blipped out be part of the team again. And we should have, be able to use these guys, Mike. I, we got an, an extra five years of, of LeBron's prime because he blipped out and then he came back, Mike. What do you think we should do about this, Mike? It's a crazy situation. I'll take my hands off the air. Thank you.